prejudice against things. Anyway, she won't go out with me alone. Unless her girlfriend comes with us. Same figure you come along and go out with her girlfriend. Hey, Tom, I was just speculating about a hypothesis. You understand, if we don't find the stiff out here, we leave a fresh one. As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Real jerk. You wasted eight fucking aprons on this guy. Who the hell do you think you are, Frankie Valley, or some kind of big shot? When I fix a fight, say I uh, pay a three to one favor to throw a goddamn fight. I figure I got the right to expect that fight to go off in three to one. But every time I lay in bed with a son of a bitch, Bernie Bonbon, before I know it, the odds is even up. Gangster was better than being president of the United States. Even before I first wandered into the cab stand for an after-school job, I knew I wanted to be a part of them. It was there that I knew that I belonged. And to me, it meant being somebody in a neighborhood that was full of nobodies. <laughs> now I'm telling these son of a bitches. That we respect the hey. of this country. Oh, you had a fire? Fuck you, pay me. Adventure. <laughs> Excitement. <laughs> Frankly, my dear, I don't give it. You can't handle the butthead. I am the father. Just stand on it, I guess. Long she can. I love the spell. Mrs. Hogwarter. You're gonna need a bigger potion. Come with me if you want to live. See what happens, Lebowski? You see what happens? You got the wrong guy. I'm the dude, man. Your name's Lebowski, Lebowski. How do I look? Bring out today! Jamie and Partley's up! Welcome to the 24th episode of My Movies Better. I'm Kevin Harden. And I am Dylan Ritchie. There we go. And uh, this week, we are getting married to the mob. And we are <laughs> watching... Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, hey. We're watching some gangster movies. Gangsta, gangster, and uh, basically gangs crime families anything like that and we had some um debate on the group about a particular movie that almost got picked this week and i just want to put all of that to bed i understand you guys who were saying uh that kung fu hustle did not belong where it where it was on the poll i understand what you're saying but i i have to disagree just on the basis that it is a movie about crimes and crime families. So I understand that you guys didn't like that, 
But hey, we're not covering it. So if you guys listening to this, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You should go join the Facebook group. Um, we're a little disappointed in them right now, but I'm not, I'm not because <laughs> I'm, <old>. I'm always <laughs> I'm always down to watch Goodfellas. Um, oh yeah, and, I mean, and I I'll had, do it any day. My my main horse in the running in any of these is whether or not I own the movie, and I already owned both Goodfellas and Kung Fu Hustle, so I was like. Perfect. But they were just really going hard about it, and I was like, "Guys, it's it's all cool, man. It's, yeah. it's not about. It's not just supposed to be gangsters." And I kind of liked that we had this week. We had sort of a cross section, or whatever, uh, of movies to pick from, um, and and the three choices I think were all kind of vastly different takes on the genre of like crime and crime family movies. Uh, so this week we have the immortal Goodfellas. The um, one of the greatest movies of all time, in my personal opinion. Uh, we also had Miller's Crossing, and that was my pick. And Dylan, you picked Imperial Dreams. Yes, I did. And so, yeah, we kind of have like a totally. We have not only like different um, time periods. We also have just differing takes on it. So uh, I think it'll be an interesting kind of episode to kind of get into these movies and uh you said you wanted to start out with imperial dreams yeah uh, i I think that would make the most sense because that is sort of the lone wolf of these three movies although there's a lot of differences in miller's crossing and goodfellas i think that imperial dreams doesn't share many similar messages as those two movies yeah i think it's because it's not as much about um like a particular gang and i mean obviously i think it's mentioned in the film i know he's part or he's you know in a you know particular section of town or street you know gang but it's not sort of and i i I believe they're crips because they say cuz a whole lot Um, but so i mean i don't know if that's true i just know a lot of c words yeah that's a crip (laughs) thing I guess I'm not. I have no idea. I'm white. <laughs> Kevin's um, not. A, <laughs> Kevin's not a Crips. So. No, I'm not affiliated with the Crips in any way. Or the Bloods. Uh, I have no non non bias. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's more about uh, our main character's hero's journey. But that was honestly why I liked that you picked it because um, instead of having, I don't mean to say like run of the mill as in. Goodfellas is run of the mill, but like I didn't want to just have an episode where it was like three like a Sopranos like type of mafia (laughs) movies, just because like there's more to that. Um, You know, there's Hong Kong cinema, and there's a lot of gang type cinema in that. You know, we could have even done like Ninja Turtles. Honestly, guys, you missed that one. Yeah, disappointed. Um, (laughs) Yeah, with Imperial Dreams, it's nice because um, as opposed to Goodfellas and Miller's Crossing, where it's current. Uh, mafia mob situations those movies take place within the mafia within mm-hmm. the mob they're carrying out mob actions imperial dreams is sort of a post gang yeah. movie yeah. where the whole the whole plot is sort of following him he just got out of jail and he's trying to stay away from it right so it shows how heavy of an impact being involved in something like that does to you afterwards totally. it'd be as if they made a follow up to Goodfellas, as if I, uh, Henry didn't rat out every single yeah, person. Yeah, I don't yeah, know, right. <laughs> like, and he like right. tried to stay away from like, the yeah, whole the he, whole scene. If he had come out of jail, if Henry had come out of jail and not gone back to it, 
if he had actually listened to Polly, got out, stayed away from the drugs, and just tried to go legit, it would basically be Imperial Dreams. Right, yeah. The yeah. First, if the second half of Goodfellas, exactly. instead of Henry becoming a massive cokehead, <laughs> was him trying to stay clean and not like cheat on his right. wife all the movie. fucking time. Comfortable. So, Imperial Dreams came out uh, in 2017 uh, as a Netflix original, though I believe it was made before that. I think yeah, it was. It was a, yeah, it premiered at Sundance and yep. won a couple of awards there. Um, and it stars uh, John Boyaga. I think it's how you yeah, say Bo- it. Boyaga, Boyaga. I think so. Uh, Rotimi. Oh, oh my God! This is the hardest part of the podcast. <laughs> uh, trying to read names when I didn't do enough. Uh, Research. Research. Yeah, I, like <laughs> I think it might be just Rotimi, isn't that just like? Well, yeah, actually, he, I think it's just what? credited as it Rotimi. Now, now that you mentioned that, I did click on it because I was like, "Oh, how do you say that name?" And then it came up as just Rotimi. So we'll just go by that. Kiki Palmer, uh, Glenn Plummer, and Sufi Bradshaw has music by Flying Lotus, which one is of my awesome. favorites. Same, um, and was directed by. Mark Vithall. And uh, it definitely shows, I will say right off the bat, it definitely shows that it's a movie that would have trouble getting picked up by like major studios uh, to get, um, and w- why probably ended up going to Netflix, even though it's really good, is that it feels like a very, um, like it feels like you could have shot this movie on, on a phone. It's a very like easy to shoot movie. It's it could have been honestly could be done as like a stage play in a lot of ways. They're stuff. pretty much all like ground level angles. Yeah. There's no real camera tricks that and you I notice. Th- and I really think that like honestly the the soundtrack really reflects that in a lot of ways. Like Flylo's music in it is really like that 
I mean, and his music is kind of like this in general, but it's very contemplative. It's very like laid back and just kind of slow feeling like, and it kind of gives you this California, especially Southern California feel that everything's kind of like moving slower. Like there's a heat to everything. And I really think that it, it helps and hurts the movie when it does that. But for the most part, it kind of creates this like so almost sort of like comforting world around the character. Like I, even in when he was in danger, I like knew that everything was okay. Right. And there was something like comforting about the movie. It even through everything he went through, it never felt like it was, um, well, I guess I should just, but one, one of the things that I really love about this movie and it, I can tell it was made by black people and not by white people because of this is that it didn't demonize any of its characters even the fucking guys who killed his cousin. Right. It was just like a bunch of people, even the cops in a weird way. Like it, it gave everybody kind of just, they were just people. Right. And like his uncle is, I think one of the best examples. Yeah. Uncle shrimp. Oh my God, dude, that scene in the car is, is amazing because at the beginning you're, you're, you're terrified. But then as the scenes quickly in the scene, it becomes obvious that like, there's way more complexity to this relationship. And that like, you you are you leave with a totally different feeling and in a lot of movies like that it, that character would just be evil like, right and the fact that he actually is a redeemable human being and for even when he is obviously a person who has a lot of issues and it was a criminal and doing some bad shit like he's still a human being and he yeah. still loves his fucking nephew and he's not going to kill him. Like the movie tricks you into thinking like, Oh my God, he's about to blow his braids out. Yeah. Oh, so man. when we, when you told me this was the topic that we were doing, that whole relationship between uh, Bambi and uncle shrimp yep. sort of like clicked in my head because it's, it's not a gang. It's not a mafia so much as it is People. a deeply crooted. Yeah. Deeply rooted like family thing. So Bambi comes out of jail and he's reconnecting with his child and he's seeing his uncles and yep. his cousins and all these people for the first time. And they want him to start getting back into these crimes. But Bambi wants to pursue his writing career. He wants to write about a kid who grew up in crime and got out. Right. And they they don't understand that at first. Well, Uncle Shrimp doesn't really understand that because he's like, hey, like this is what we do. This right, is our thing. Exactly. That's our family. That's what we've done. That's what we're going to do. Right. So you see those conflicts where they, they get into the huge fight when his cousin Wayne, I think wants to drive the car full of like Percocets to mm -hmm, Portland. Mm -hmm. And they yeah, get I think it was huge... actually, it was Portland, but I think it was actually oxys. Oh yeah. Ox yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like full of oxys and he wants to take the car up there and they get into this huge fight. And you, like you said, you're like, Holy shit. Like, right. He's going to blow his uncle's brains out on exactly. the couch. But yeah. then it just comes down to their family and they realize there's bigger fish to fry. Exactly. Well, and there's also a bit of like you, I think what was so powerful to me about that, particularly that scene where it turns around. So it's like kind of explain uh, the story first. It's, you know, we have John Boyega has just gotten out of jail. He has a young son and his, uh, the mother of his child is also in jail and she's still in jail. And so he's kind of coming back and, and his, like you said, he lives with his uncle, his uncle, you know, obviously is involved in crimes. It's the hood as they call it. And 
it, it, but it's presented in a way like this is just how people survive. There are no gang colors in this movie. I thought that was a hugely interesting way to just show that, like, look, this isn't about organizations. This literally is how people have to survive. Yeah, that one specific scene when he was out on the corner with his son and the guy rode by on his bike yep. and was like, hey, man, there was a killing last night, so you might want to stay in. Exactly. It, it didn't show any gang affiliation. It didn't show anything. It just said, hey, man. Yep. This place is Stuff's dangerous. Exactly. You know, people are offering There's each other guns all the time. This scene where, because you never even really find out what happened. I think it's insinuated that it had something to do with drugs. But when he first is talking to the, the mother of his child, she's like, I had to do it. You know, so basically saying, like, I'm in jail. Like, she must have gone to jail. The movie doesn't really. Oh, so what, what I think happened there. Completely, I don't think. What I think happened there was it, they were really talking over each other pretty hard. And that was that, that's a couple things I have a problem with this movie is the dialogue presented itself. Excuse me. In a relatively poor way. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of weird things like that with people talking over each other. And it's really easy to miss things yeah so that was sort of pans back to what you said that it could really be like a a college project film like right, shot on a right, phone right. so what i think happened with her she said was uh that they didn't get their food stamps on time and so she she must have done some robbery or something right but that's what she i'm saying said, she did some sort of crime yeah, or yeah, she, yeah. Like, like i was thinking because she sold drugs and got caught trying to get money like whatever it yeah was. something but but that's what I found so interesting about it. it wasn't about I didn't care about what she did because the with one of the things the movie does really brilliantly is it it creates this thought in your these ideas in your mind where you already know because of just how reality is that like this is a reality for people who live in this situation, especially for African Americans, especially in South Central Los Angeles. And I think it's just, you know, it's a part of American pop culture at this point. Right. And so many of the characters are just kind of like presented just as as human as possible in that way. It doesn't matter because what's what they're really saying is I had to do this to survive. And that's the thing that that his character is struggling with, John Boyega, the whole film, because he's trying so hard not to go do that. But what's funny about it to me is that like. I get it. He could get in a lot of trouble if he gets caught. And there's a good chance that because as the movie shows you, literally they go driving anywhere and it seems like these the cops, these cops are on him. him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who are also people of color, which I thought was another interesting touch there. But so it's like, but it's not like you gotta go kill somebody or you gotta go shoot somebody up. You're just driving drugs. And, right. And he even the way he presents it too, when he's almost like trying to talk, himself into it i think he's talking to his brother he says like i gotta drive somewhere and not look in the trunk basically mm -hmm. and um so i think that it, it really just it presents it more as just this is a human struggle this is a reality and it's not ever trying to say that the crime is completely wrong i feel like it's it's fighting between those two ideas because even in in, in, the, in that scene that I keep referencing with his with his uncle, where his uncle essentially like puts a gun to his head. Yeah, so he's living in his car at that yeah. point in the movie, and he gets back into his car. This is after the scene that he had pointed a gun at his uncle in his own in his uncle's house. He like threatened to kill him right. there, basically. So John Boyega's character gets back into his car, and his uncle is there waiting for him, puts a gun to the back of his head, and, and John Boyega's son is sitting in the passenger seat. Right. So that's the 
That's the right. thick of that scene. And yeah, and it was basically because his there I mean we we kind of skip around without telling all the plot and the, I mean obviously if you haven't seen the movie you should go check it out it is on Netflix which I know a lot of people have yeah so it's a fun watch yeah it's it's definitely a wicked enjoyable watch and it's um but so it, I would say the best way to put it is that he's essentially throughout the movie like I said struggling with the idea of whether or not he should go back and do some do a essentially it's like the thing in blow should i do the crime one more time just so i can make this money and then i'll get out and at the same time just being presented with all these bureaucratic obstacles like the whole scene where he's like he can't get his license because he needs to have pay his child support but he can't get a job because he can't get his license so he's basically just stuck and it's like what else can he do and he keeps coming so close closer and closer and closer the same time though you have this interesting juxtaposition with his brother Wayne who is trying to go to school and he's sort of like he's always wearing they always present him as wearing a suit and stuff and he's kind of that sort of like guy who's trying to get out he's always presented as like John John is like the um the the bad brother and this is like the younger protected brother you know it's a trope I see, you see a lot like boys in the hood used it obviously totally so he's like the golden child brother. And now this kid is saying, I want to go do this crime basically because it, it, it was basically because they got into a fight. I thought a like, cool thing about what you just mentioned that hmm. they through the whole movie, they present John Boyega wearing sort of jean, oh, Bambi, I guess his name's Bambi, which is yes, awesome. Yes, we should say his name's name Bambi. Bambi. He's uh, wearing like jeans and a crew neck shirt the whole time. And they show Wayne and he's in a suit and a tie and this and that. And when Wayne finally decides yeah. that he wants to do the crime, he's at Uncle Shrimp's house wearing big white jeans shirt. and a big white shirt. Exactly. So when he steps aside from the, I'm going to go study at Howard, I'm going to study law, this and that, and he decides to drive that car to Portland, he's in the same right, clothes right. that Bambi would wear. He dons the uniform. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was like a really interesting mm -hmm. uh, costume take on that. Yeah. And it's because like it's also really interesting because it's uh it, as i said it's a trope that gets used a lot boys in the hood used it most famously and in this film it's kind of turned around because one of the things i really liked about their relationship was that you had this you know as we're saying so he he decides he wants to do this stuff his brother i mean and uh they get into this fight over it that leads to the scene we we're talking about where bambi pulls a gun on the uncle and there's never a resolution for the two brothers that's seen. There's never a point in the movie where they're like, hey, man, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's they just off-screen it. Yep, there's this one scene where uh, Bambi's, like, outside of the bathroom, and he's in the bathroom, and he walks by, and they see each other. But then the next time they're both on screen together, they're just hanging out, and they're laughing, and they're with, you know, they're with... With the, the kid, yeah. Exactly. Day. Day, exactly. And it's like oh, yeah, that's because they're normal fucking human beings. I think that gets so reinforced in this movie that that, and it, at first, I didn't get it. It took me really towards near the end for it to sink in. At first, I was kind of bored by the movie, honestly. I was like, this is cool. I like what this movie's saying. I, I love everything about it, except for I'm bored out of my mind. I feel like they're just kind of walking around. They're just going places. And it wasn't until the end, because at about eight minutes left, his son gets taken away by social services. And I was like, whoa, this movie's totally going to do it. 
there's no way they can resolve this in eight minutes. And the movie knows that you're thinking that. So like mm-hmm. it can't end with him like actually getting his son back. Maybe there's some sort of positive resolution. And I thought that at that moment I was like, man, this is just like fucking real life. Yeah. That's that, what's been going on. This that is movie. the best part about the movie mm-hmm. is that it is something that maybe, maybe not me, maybe not you, but it's something that is a lot more relatable for most people it is a real life situation and like you said the pacing is is pretty slow at a lot of points you're literally watching him wait at the registry you're you're, like they're calling a 105 they're calling all these numbers exactly they're just doing real life things but that sort of brings out the beauty of it to me that it's just real life things happening totally well i mean you could say the same thing about like super famous movies like uh ikiru like mm-hmm. him sitting on a swing set in like for a, in a long period of time before he speaks. There's there's some some people who are going to take that and be like, I'm bored by that. But there's other people who might be like, I'm bored in the moment. But then when they realize what's going on, you're like, oh, now I understand why the director is, is doing that, why they're turning our eye this way. Because um, th- this film had a... I think it had a a pretty like strong through line of like crime is bad but it's necessary but also you can rise above it but then there was but the movie didn't end with like and then you're fine it also kind of ended with like but you really can't not completely and like just because this kid just because Bambi has done everything that he's supposed to do and he's been really good and he's tried so hard doesn't mean that everything's going to work out for him exactly fine right and that's not how most movies normally resolve and i think that's a really great way to put it because it's positive but it's also realistic that it's like at the end of the movie it's basically like your kid is going to be in foster care because i remember one of the lines he says like i'm going to try to navigate this foster journey with him like, he's probably not going to... He's going to be in his life, but he's not going to be, like, taking care of him. He's not going to be his guardian, you right. know? And that's... The fact that he's so positive about that is what's great about the ending. But it also shows you that, like, there are obstacles that these... That not just these people, I don't mean, like, you know, that blacks, in particular, because of the way this country has been set up, face every day. But anybody who gets put in that situation... And that says a lot about the prison system. And I think this movie, that's the intended target more than anything else. I think think it was really important of them that they established a really strong social flaw. There's a really big social flaw in certain areas of the country. They specifically targeted a neighborhood that seemingly everyone everyone knew each other, everyone was involved. There was no escape from it. He's talking, there's those... There were those moments in the movie where he's writing and he's the narrator. Like Bambi would be narrating and yep. it would be what he was writing for his his book. And he's basically like explains to you all these problems of the social life of this area. And if they had resolved it with a, a bright, happy ending, it would have lost so much reality to it. Because they established that there are there are flaws, there are problems. It's not going to be all peaches and cream right. all the time, right. and they lead you out with that, with the mystery that you know it's not it's not going to exactly. be great all the time, exactly. you know. And I think also there's something interesting about the way that the actual project looks, 
Blake, I guess you could say, it almost is designed not just, I mean, in real life as well, too, but I think the particular location they shot at, it has this prison-like look to it. The blue, like, baby blue walls, the you know, obviously these gated doors always are going to look yeah, like Yeah, something that, about projects always exactly. kind of bored. But they bored this, you in mentally. Mm-hmm. But this particular location, and I really think it's the color. There's something about it that just screams like penal colony to me. And it feels like they really are, the tr- characters are really trapped there. And I think that more than almost any other uh, quote-unquote hood movie that has ever been made, I think this movie does that the best as really saying that more than violence and more because like for instance the 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 violence in the movie is almost like secondary there's not a ton of it the most violent act is when his cousin gets killed and that scene never really has a resolution and that's really important because that's another thing the movie's saying like nah you don't go get revenge it's not like boys in the hood ice cube doesn't drive down the street and find the guys and fucking take revenge and get away with it that's not how it works right in real life you never fucking find those guys or if you did you wouldn't be able to do anything but get shot by them yourself yeah and that's what makes it more real that yep. is such a cool yep. aspect of it and exactly. his uncle that was a big that was a big plot pivotal point for you knowing that Bambi wasn't gonna right. I feel like that was the one point where I realized Bambi wasn't gonna cave because there were a couple points earlier in the movie with the whole driving thing and getting given guns and saying you need this and need that yep. where you're, you're the viewer is almost concerned that Bambi's gonna cave and he's gonna do that one crime right. like the blow aspect of it right, he'll right. do the one to do the none afterwards exactly but then after he watches his best friend get killed and his uncle offers him a gun and is like, let's go find these guys. Right. Let's do this. And Bambi a- turns it down. That's when you know that he's taken right, the, right. the correct road. Exactly. But it's also interesting because in most movies like this, and even in this movie, I felt it a little bit at certain times. So it's the same thing in, in Scarface. It's the same thing in Goodfellas obstacles are placed in front of the character that are unfair and you as a viewer no matter what the situation is go well that's unfair right. and you start to root for them to do it you go well yeah go fucking drive the fucking yeah Oxies. just fucking do it man you, don't you, look in the trunk fu- yeah don't look like, in the trunk the fucking government's fucking with you man yeah. do it that fucking does, hernandez is gonna follow right, you anyways right, right and that's how most gangster movies do play out is that you cheer for them up into the point where they break a moral that you cannot abide by you know you can't abide by this particular thing they've done and in most cases it's that they just go too far but it's like at first in scarface you're like hell yeah go for it man by the end you're like oh maybe this guy's gone too far right 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 and it and it definitely feel that in goodfellas yeah exactly there's an alienation that the character goes through from everyone in their lives and it's like bambi is fighting that throughout this whole movie and he never caves, even when he comes close. There's like, for instance, in the scene where he he so he gets his cousin's gun after he gets killed, and he hides it, sort of as this like another thing to make you think, oh man, he's get, still keeping this like connections to that old life. And then he goes and gets the gun, and you think he's going to like be like, hey, I'm gonna go do something, I'm gonna do a robbery, or whatever, I'm gonna go help the uncle. And yep. then it leads you to this scene where. Like, we've been talking about it so much, but let's actually go through it. He pulls the gun on his uncle. 
he fucking gets his family out of there basically he gets his brother out of there and he he's like this you know kind of trying to be like this is it as you said then his uncle appears later in his car and this scene i thought was the most important scene of the whole movie because it said so much about not just bambi's character but about pretty much every character in the whole movie and one of the things that i think was so important about it was that as I said before, at the beginning and the end of the scene, you feel two vastly different emotions. And it's akin to one of, I think, the greatest scenes in cinema history in this movie, Persona, um, by Bergman. Mm-hmm. There's this ability to totally change not just like how you felt about a character, about a scene, but how you feel about the whole movie in one per- in one scene in a film. And this film, this scene does it perfectly. Because the uncle's character has always been sort of presented throughout the film as not just a villain, but as someone to fear and that that you, you should actually fear that he's going to hurt either Bambi or even his kid. And that's reinforced in this scene when Bambi says to him, and then what, you know, are you going to, then what loved one is actually what he says. Yeah. yeah. And it was assuming, are you going to kill day after this? And, it's it was so interesting is that it's like the whole time the uncle's basically like no i'm not actually gonna kill you that's not why i'm here but like you've did you disrespected me i am still a human being and for it, it reminds you that like this guy has his own shit and yes he is not the best person in the world he's shown you that in this film but that's only a small snapshot of who that character is as a person and as he leaves the car there's a totally different feeling because you're like not only are you relieved that like Bambi and his son are safe but there's also this bit where like the uncle kind of convinces you that there is a truth to what he's saying yeah I had to raise you to be a certain way and in a way the way that the uncle raised him made him into the person that he was a million percent so like I thought that that scene was so pivotal to me I actually that was one of the only scenes that I had to go back and watch not had to, but did go back and watch twice. Yeah, because every single line of dialogue in that scene is yeah. super important. It's super important. That is, the, I'd say that's the peak of the movie. Me too. Yeah, where that's, that's yep. where it peaks. It doesn't dramatically drop off cliff at that point, no, but no. that is a hundred percent the peak of the movie. Right, because I think right after that you do have you know this this kind of kind of interesting, weird, different ending that we mentioned before. Um, but I did like it because again, it was uplifting, but not unrealistic or silly to think that it could happen that way. And I really think that that's like the, the biggest thing this hit thing had going for it aside from its overall like message, which I was super on board with was just the fact that it was really real and there aren't a lot of movies that are like that. And it's funny that one of the characters, I think it's actually the, the cousin at one point says, when you write this, keep it a hundred, like keep it, completely real and he he reinforces that a couple times in the script in different ways like i'm keeping it real or whatever yeah and that's the whole movie it feels more realistic than a lot of movies i think i've ever seen so yeah and i I know i said it before but that the whole aspect of it just being very real and very down to earth yeah and I, I mean, Miller's Crossing and Goodfellas are, were fantastic movies, and not to say that there isn't reality right. to those stories, because I understand that Goodfellas is based on reality, and Miller's Crossing, not. Right. But but still, well, like, but, but those things those things happened. Yeah, yeah, those things happened. Um, but for the current day, 
something like Imperial Dreams is something that more people can can watch, even if you aren't from that sort of area mm. or of right. of that type of family, you can understand the reality behind it. You know, totally. totally. And uh, Officer Hernandez. Uh, his last name in real life is Hernandez. So that is one lazy aspect of the movie that I had to point always, out before we finish this. I always love when they do that. Thing. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's like Maximiliano Hernandez is yes, his name. I believe. Yes, it is. I know I've seen that guy in other stuff. He's in uh, he's, uh, Agent Sitwell. In oh, he's in yeah, the he's yeah, in the MCU. Marvel, he's in yeah. yeah, he's in like uh, Agents of Shield and Thor and all those oh, movies. Yeah. He's been in lots of stuff. He was in Hotel for Dogs. Hey, that's a. We'll be discussing that at some point, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that, no. Imperial Dreams is it was a great movie. Definitely a recommended yeah, watch. Uh, definitely, I think if uh, and if you another thing we should mention because we did talk about it a tiny bit in mentioning it, but um, if you're at all into Flying Lotus, you'll probably be down with this soundtrack because it's all Flying Lotus and he is. He's doing a very minimalist version of what he does. It's like, it's very, it's a very safe flying lotus. Like yeah, it's not like entry uh, level flying yeah, lotus. Yeah. It's not like Los Angeles, <laughs> but it, I could hear, I could hear the same influences. It's definitely heavily jazz, and um, yeah, like influence. Southern California hip hop. Yeah, exactly. Sort of sound. And it has his like very distinct beat style, which is like a little off kilter sometimes a little bit like almost like robotic or mechanical in like with like parts dropping and coming in here and there like it's a very he's a one of my favorite artists um i think of it as a lot of like a machine shop sounding kind yeah, of stuff yeah he's so great and he kind of mixes that with this like very like ethereal and like jazzy piano type stuff very lots of electric pianos and stuff like that so it has this very interesting vibe, um, and it, it, it's always like I said before. Kind of, it's there's a very comforting feeling to it. There's not a lot of like, like I feel like uh, when there's action or stuff like that in a movie, the music kind of drops out, or I don't notice it as much. Like the music is more to reinforce his positive moods, or at least his. Um, is not like it's it's not like all of a sudden there's like dun, 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 type like crazy yeah it's not action know, movie yeah. things are blowing up right like I feel like in a scene where like his cousin gets shot and they're being chased like it's just no music it's just and that is re another really important thing where it's like the music is happening when he's like thinking and like you would when you're like kind of like losing yourself in in music or something but when reality's happening reality is happening yeah so. the music does show up a lot when he's sort of staring off into space mm -hmm. and then it's silent. When it totally. when there wouldn't be any music happening in real life. Totally. Speaking of music, um, I think next we should cover uh, Miller's Crossing. <laughs> oh, the music in that. Man. Danny Boy, <laughs> if Danny Boy isn't stuck in your head after watching this oh movie, oh my god, that I could talk about that Danny Boy shootout scene for oh yeah twenty minutes. Well, there's it's not there's not just that scene. There's also one of the parts of the score is Danny Boy. Oh, right, so like right, right. Yeah. Like, you know how every once in a while there's those like, dee -dee -dee -dee, like Irish music segue yeah, yeah, yeah. right here in the background. Um, 
yeah, one of those parts of the score goes into Danny Boy. Like, it's just no saying. shit. So, uh, <laughs> this movie yeah. is hilarious and amazing. Yes, I love this movie. It's one of my favorites. This is your choice. It's my pick, yes. My pick. It's my pick. It <laughs> uh, came out in 1990. Um, what did you say? Three days? Three days before. before. Or may, might have, I think it came out on a Wednesday. And then Goodfellas yep. came out on a yep. Friday. And uh, it starred uh, Gabriel Byrne as Tom Reagan, our main character. Marsha Gay Harden, Albert Finney, who, rest in peace, He just we just lost him. Um, Sad. John Turturro, John Polito, J.E. Freeman, and the always lovable bug-eyed Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Mink. Mink, yes. They um, off screened my man. I know. He only got one scene and then he and then he got killed <laughs> off screen. But he's fantastic in that scene. Oh, that he, scene is so good. He totally gets the energy of this script. Okay, this is one of my favorite scripts of all time. Uh, as a movie, there's some stuff that I think could have been done better. I still love it. It's a great movie and everything, but it's definitely not the Coen Brothers' best work. It's shows where they're going. This is, I think you said it was their fourth movie. They, yeah, 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 yeah. It was their fourth movie. And this is this is when they had started to find their stride, but it was before that would start to um, hit the mainstream with stuff like Fargo, especially. Yeah, I believe Barton Fink was the movie right after this okay, one. Yeah. So yeah. that and I feel like that is that was I feel like Barton of, Fink is a pivotal. That was sort of the first time that yeah, because that one um, actually I I don't think this film got nominated for any Academies, but I'm pretty sure Barton. Barton Fink won one, actually. Did it? I'm pretty sure. If not, I think it was actually nominated. Computer, computer, come in. Yes. Barton Fink had its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in May 1991. In a rare sweep, it won the Palme d'Or, as well as awards for Best Director and Best Actor, Turturro. It was nominated for three Academy Awards. That one's a weird movie because it's one of those that's like, um, not to get too into it, but that's one of those that like is universally both loved and hated like yeah 50, 50. absolutely i've actually never seen it so maybe one day we'll cover really it. yeah i've never wow. actually seen it um Holy and i love both john Turturro and john goodman so it just i just never watched it wow all right and I love yeah, the Coens, keep too. that in mind but um so this film is about prohibition era gangsters irish italians jews and there it, it's the scripting is like the amazing it's almost like a parody or a sat or a light satire of 1930s gangster movies 
And uh, I wanted to talk about that just off the top because we're also going to get a little bit into that, or at least I'll mention it now, in Goodfellas because um, uh, in Good, uh, oh my God, Martin Scorsese. Yeah, that's his name. <laughs> that's totally his name. Was uh, highly influenced by 1930s gangster movies. And I think the Coens also tried to, at the very least, they tried to make their own 1930s gangster movie. So, uh, Dylan, what did you think? about this this movie of miller's crossing yeah so um i thought that like you mentioned it was very very light-hearted for being such a relatively serious topic yeah. at the base um i thought they established a really cool line of characters and they sort of just throw you into the fire whereas totally. if you were if we were talking about goodfellas later where there's a lot of build-up you kind of start at the 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 brass tacks of a story with nothing happening and you get like the, the climb to success and then the fall this one, there's no climb. There's no fall. You're in the middle of it. These characters already have a conflict that you're just introduced to. And the Coen brothers set it up in a way where it's, it's comedic, but it feels like it's not supposed to be right at the same time. Well, I think one of the things that they do really well is they make they allow the actors and the characters to speak for themselves, so to speak. And um, like, I think one of the greatest examples is in Big Lebowski with the dude. Immediately, you're drawn to the character without him actually saying a single line from his first scene. Yep. And they they do that really well with this movie too. I think actually, it's funny though the character that gets that though. Albert Finney as Leo O'Bannon is amazing. And if you ever go watch a James Cagney movie after watching this and you'll be like, holy shit, he just he's playing James Cagney. He's doing like an <laughs> amazing <laughs> James Cagney. Basic, I don't want to say impression, but he's he feels like he could have fit into one of those movies. However, I think the guy that steals this movie is uh, John Polito as Casper, the Italian mobster. He steals the movie to the point where they knew they had to put him in the opening scene and let him actually kind of open the movie for is that the is that johnny no he's uh he's the guy that's he's the bald italian gangster who's at the very beginning of the film yeah the the mustache yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. he's um that that whole opening scene with him where he's talking about ethics and about how they get a killer yeah fixing the fight and yeah, yeah it completely like gives you the the world of the movie and without actually giving you a whole lot of information other than like the very pertinent okay this is the the opening plot but it also tells you a lot about like what kind of world you're entering into and it's a very it's the gangster fight it's almost like dick tracy style seriously is. world yeah seriously is and like o'bannon he isn't seen as a gangster he's called a politician in the movie right because he's a union boss you know and that's another important distinction like the movie takes a very tongue-in-cheek approach to the gangster films, and I, that's what I always really like about. Yeah, and the whole the idea of Leo being this sort of mob leader, but also a respected politician, mm-hmm. is such a strange yep. conflict. Right. Well, it also, it, I mean, it it's shown that like he not only like he's essentially the real mayor of town or the real police chief of town. One of my other favorite little juxtaposition scenes is where 
early in the film, there's a scene where Tom goes into uh, Leo's office and there's the police chief and uh, the mayor sitting there. And he's like, oh, you know him and you know the mayor. It's like, hey, guys. And then later on in the film, he goes into after after the Irish have lost out. They go into like the real right. mayor. <laughs> but he goes, he goes in. No, he goes into uh, uh, Casper, Johnny Casper. Yeah, yeah, And he's like, hey, you know, it's the same scene. Right, right, right. right. And, and so in the same thing with when they're they're busting the Italians and later when they're busting the Irish. And right. He's outside talking to the, the chief of police like the, the the juxtaposition of the scenes is so brilliantly done. And um, I really think that it it just it's really shows you like like how much they knew about making films, um, even at a very young or a very early point in their career. And I think that it's sad that this film doesn't get more credit or isn't, you know, a lot of people like my my mom is the one who introduced me to this film out of all people, even though she usually hates movies like this. Mm-hmm. She's been told me to watch it. She like really likes the Coen brothers. And so years ago, I was like, all right, let me give it a shot. And from the first time I watched it, I was like, damn, how has nobody tell me, told me about this movie before? Because it is really fucking good. And it's it's one of their better movies. Um, up, I think it's up there with movies like Fargo and Lebowski. Yeah, to be honest, I never never knew it existed yeah, before I had to watch this. It's kind of like Barry Lyndon for Stanley Kubrick. It's yeah, like yeah. Those, it's like everybody knows their movies, like, but... They don't know this movie. You know? Yeah, and when I when I watched this, I agree it was up there with some of the greats of the Coen Brothers that I watched. You know, it's not yeah. not quite like Lebowski or O Brother status for me, but it's definitely up there. The one thing I noticed about it the first time I watched it, we were talking about this earlier, is that it doesn't feel like it was released in 1990. <laughs> well, how so? Like, Just like the the opening crawl with the names, what it says the the name of the movie on the screen, right, right. the the fact that it's really score driven and not soundtrack driven. Mm-hmm. There's borderline no soundtrack to the movie. No, there, isn't. there isn't a soundtrack. It's it's all score. It is. It's almost like '80s sitcom scorey. Where a scene will end, and then you'll just get like that do 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 score sound. Nineteen thirties score. Yeah. So the thing. There's there's musical segues. It's it's very orchestral. Mm-hmm. But there 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 are like lots of uh, fiddles and Irish pipes, or at least violins and Irish. Yeah, pipes which is themes. fitting to yeah. the the plot. And they're very uplifting, like melodies. They're not like they're not. Um, what you would normally have in a movie like this. However, when you start to think about it, you're like, it is very, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not historical, but it's, it's right for the time period. Yeah. yeah I forget yeah. what that word is, but, um, and it, it fits in with what kind of music would have been available then, which is one of the things I really thought was important about the soundtrack. It is a little off putting. I know a lot of people have pointed that out about the score where they're like, it's weird that that music plays like it's like, yes, but it, it, it also kind of puts you into the mood. The movie wants you to be. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be pissed off that a movie about the Irish mafia has traditional Irish music playing in between scenes. It's also a very goofy movie and it's an uplifting movie in the sense that it doesn't ever really want to put you 
Uh, it doesn't make you want to think that this stuff is bad. It's one of those sort of like it's it's pulpy, like a lot of their their stuff is. Absolutely, like, absolutely. You know, like even in the saddest points of the Big Lebowski, like it's hard to really cry about Donnie, you know, because everything around it is so ridiculous and silly that like it's hard to feel as as emotional about it. So I think that the musical choices are really really important, and I think they're actually. Their films, they do it amazingly. It's one of the things that makes Fargo so interesting is this juxtaposition of like pop music and and then a score that has moments of it that are very frightening music, you know, and, and really yep. builds it up. But there's always, it always comes back to this like kind of mundane, regular, everything's normal sort of feel that permeates the rest of the film. And I think in this film, it just kind of really helps to always make you feel like well everything's gonna be okay because that's what really this is the type of movie that it that it is I yes guess is the way to put it it's um it's a it's a pulp movie yeah so i know? feel like when they establish our uh protagonist tom yeah um throughout the whole movie you quickly realize that this man isn't the the toughest guy of the bunch and well, he's not like i think i think that he is like tough in a different way he's tough in a mental and a like he can take a punch and right. not but like and they present should... you with this protagonist who is just for the first almost hour of the movie is just getting the shit kicked oh, out yeah. of him in every would, different location also like um what i find so interesting about it is he's your your typical like irish badass it's like that that irish stereotype that they like irish men especially can never ever not have the last word so when he should just shut his fucking mouth he has to say something he else. does it at the door <laughs> i think yep. like six times in the movie yep. where he's and leaving then, a room and the other guy could have the last good word and he'll just sneak in a not very useful right, comment exactly. and shut the door well, just to get that last little tidbit also what kind of weirdly though what makes him tough is that he takes his beatings when he knows like he should like the one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he finally reveals to Leo, his boss, that he's been sleeping with this girl. Oh, that's yeah, Marsha Gay Harden. Who we also I gotta give a huge shout out to Marsha Gay Harden, spelled with an E, but still name name just like mine. Um, she is love a Harden exactly. She is amazing in this movie, and her character is great too. But um, when when that, she crushes it, when that pivotal scene happens and he's walking away, uh, another great thing the Coens they just know they're so good at like setting scenes. So he walks down that hallway and it's full of just just gang members with Tommy guns and they're all standing there talking. And then Leo <laughs> Leo comes out, jacket off, taking his jacket off, hands to one of the rolls guys, up the rolls sleeves, up the sleeves <laughs> just just punches <laughs> him. That that whole scene, he doesn't ever fight back. Like he knows. Yeah, that, just yeah. knows that that's what he deserves. Exactly. Yeah, and there's another one also when he comes out of uh, he comes out of his apartment and the guys are waiting there for him, and Leo sent those oh, yeah, guys. Oh, no, Lazar, Lazar did. The guy oh yeah, 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 yeah. Leo's yeah. money too. Yeah, and he sent those guys, and then at the end, he's like. The guy's like, hey, take it easy, Tommy. Like, yeah. have a good one. They're, they're like, they're still buddies yeah. after they get into this. Like, held him back and exactly. punched him in the gut exactly. like 30 times. They're still boys well, afterwards. They also, there's a, another thing that, like, the Coen brothers do a lot. That... 
Washed it down with one beer, two beers, three beers, a shot of whiskey, a margarita, and a Bloody Mary. And I said, Stone Cold, why have one when you can have them both? It's really, um, I think, a, a, a staple or a, a even a, a little like uh, signature almost of their stuff is that repetition yep. and stuff like that. Um, especially like like we mentioned earlier, using scenes or or the same thing happening, almost like deja vu happening in a different place to actually repeating lines over and over again, even if it's not the same character. Like characters will say the same line at different times to a character in a movie and stuff in, in their films in particular. And uh it's very interesting. This film does a lot of it to kind of show you like almost that it, it almost makes it feel like all of it's like immaterial and all this stuff that's happening doesn't really matter. And uh, I think that that's it, kind of an interesting way to look at the, the whole idea. It also doesn't make a distinction between gangsters and anybody else like the cops in the movie are gangsters, too. You know, yeah, well, everyone in the movie seems to be a gangster. Yeah, so it seems like Tommy is on the the cops' side. So every time they come in and raid the club during the Prohibition era because they're all drinking, yep. Tommy just goes directly up to the chief of police every single time, right. and they just well, have so a great little conversation. Speaking of that, that's another thing. The, the Prohibition era is obviously, a, as I mentioned and you just mentioned, when this takes place. And I love how constantly you're seeing not only like everybody in the movie drinking, but like the obviously like the chief and the uh, the the mayor are both drinking and then talking about how they're going to go shut down people for drinking. And like it's just there is no law basically in in it. It's like Leo's in charge. But then when um, Casper goes in charge, it's just everything reverses. But it's the same rule of law. Just Casper's the guy at the top now. Right. And so I think that that was a very interesting way of looking at it. Like to to compare this to Goodfellas definitely sets a distinction between gangsters and cops. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that actually might be more realistic, at least to definitely to that time period, um, as opposed to maybe, say, the era where this movie takes place. Right. Because this movie takes took place in a time that was much more like uh, – I mean, honestly, racist and race segregated and also in that way, therefore controlled by gangs and by race relations as in, you know, relation to each other. So it's like, hey, if the mayor's Irish and the guy running the town's Irish, they're bet you know, they work together. Right. Whatever. Exactly. He got there because he's Irish or whatever, you know, and that's, right. there's there's less of that, you know, even though it still happens now in Massachusetts State Police, <laughs> in, you know, where you have, you know, patronage and other stuff like that. But this, the, this movie takes place is definitely like the height of that era, right? Of you know, patronage and of like gang, sort of gangs of New York, is it almost a way of looking at this film? Um, I also think another thing we've kind of glossed over is maybe one of the greatest performances in this movie, uh, John Turturro. I was as borderline yeah. going to interrupt you to bring as, this up. Yes, the, man, the man who responsible. Bernie. Bernie, yes. The man responsible for it all. So this film is about a bookie 
who is uh, selling the habits of a fight fixer and gambler. And that gambler wants to kill this bookie. And that bookie happens to be dating the big mob boss's sister. Did I say that right? I don't know if I did. If that make, doesn't make sense, when I listen back later, I'll correct myself. And that bookie's sister happens to be dating the big mob boss. But right. I so think basically, we're, I think we're near yes. there. So basically, you have this this conflict of interest. You know, he's under protection by Leo, but Casper wants to kill him. And Tom, and I think because Tom is put in the situation early on as the um, you know as the protagonist, it kind of becomes at very the beginning. You, the viewer kind of sees it his way. I feel like he's like. You're really going to risk it all for one bookie, you know, just give him up. Who cares? And as the story becomes more and more complicated, you kind of realize, oh, man, you can't just buy and sell lives. And you're doing that when he's doing that. The second they're handing him the gun saying, hey, you got to go kill Bernie. He's realizing like, oh, shit, I have to do this. And what's so interesting about that. So basically he's uh, goes to join the other gang. He gives them Bernie, thinking that it's going to end everything. Bernie will get killed. Everything will go back to normal. And he'll just, you know, lie to, to, to yeah. Bernie's sister. His, like he's been doing. His girlfriend, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and they drive out there, and they're like, now nah, you got to kill him. And that's when he realizes, oh, shit, like there's actually weight to my actions. And I, if I have to do it, he makes a choice then. I think that's a really interesting thing because it's like, so he was just gonna let them kill this guy, but because he has to do it, he spares his life. I feel that that turns back to what we were saying earlier about um, Tom being accepting of what he's owed as far as beatings and stuff goes, and that he's not the necessarily like the mafioso type, but right. he's just sort of like an Irish strong arm. Right. When he's given that pivotal decision, not not decision, he's he's told that he has to whack. Bernie, like mm-hmm. they're like, oh, the boss wants you to do it. I feel like as soon as they mention that, yeah, <laughs> when he's given that decision, you know he's not gonna take it. Right. You know he's not going to whack Bernie. You can see it in his eyes as soon as he gets out of the car. As soon as mm-hmm. he's giving the gun, well, he's not gonna do it. And there's a couple other instances too in the movie where you kind of see that it's almost like his um. His relu- he's the like the reluctant gangster because there's when he when he tells uh, uh, Casper where Mink slash um, Bernie is at first that the Royale, yeah that he infused yep, both of them yeah. there's this thing where he's like what in the Dane the Dane who is, yeah the Dane yeah holy the, smokes. The, 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 main, the primary antagonist is like hey what if he's not there and there's this like well I, basically I guess I'm fucked right. He says, and then the next cut is a hard cut to him sitting in the car looking straight forward as they pull uh, a Bernie past past the window. But the look on his face is almost like this relief that you see again later when they go to... Oh, my God. 
you so you see that same emotion later when they're going to uh, find Bernie's body, which he thinks isn't going to be there, and there's like this this terror that you see in him that totally changes. I think your whole perception of the character because he has this tough exterior, but at the same time he is presented as a very human in parts and very like not your typical gangster in in many ways, you know, like, and I think that that is another really important thing just about the characterization of Tom and how he, he is presented to the audience. And it's almost like he breaks down more and more and more and more as the film goes on just like our protagonist in Goodfellas. Yep. Where it's eventually just too much for him and really he just wants to get away from it all. And it's like you're at the beginning of the movie, you are just like in Goodfellas again, you meet the hard gangster at a turning point. And then you're seeing them realize that this is all wrong throughout the movie. And the only difference really being between the two films in that way is that you don't have you don't see him being a child and going through all that. Yeah, like I mentioned at the beginning, right. there's no rise. Right. There's no there's no rise. There's no uh dramatic right. fall. Well, you don't see it. There you know the rise. Right. There um, clearly is at some point. Right, but right, right. You don't Well they they talk about things like they're it's Im, it's implied in very like, you know, open cliche dialogue. Like there's a line where he's like Ah, we've been, you know, Leo's like, we've been through worse than this. And the other one's like, never, uh, the other guy, Tom is like, never without a reason. And so there's, yeah, there's, there's, and there's definitely like, they know each other. There's definitely histories and, and it's just, it doesn't have to be explicit. Right. And I think that that, that, you know, just is part of what the Coens do really, really well with world building. Um, because there's also a weird thing about this movie that I wanted to mention. Uh, it's kind of interesting. It, it harkens back, as we said, to a different age of filmmaking. And one film that I really compare it to in the way that it treats its subject matter is actually Casablanca. Okay. Because the gangsters in this movie are kind of almost, it's akin to the way the Nazis are portrayed in Casablanca. There's a fluffiness to everything that takes that dark edge off of it, you know, um, that makes it it makes it a totally different gangster movie viewing experience than, say, Goodfellas. Right. There's not those those hard edges where you're like, oh, this person's actually super dangerous. Even characters like the Dane, there's like a bit of goofiness or weirdness to them that kind of like makes everything feel safer. I think one of the best examples is a scene we talked about earlier, which actually also features an actor who is in both of these movies. Somehow he was in Goodfellas and Miller's Crossing. Um, and his name is Mike Starr. And you've probably seen him in a bunch of stuff because he's been in a bunch, a bunch of, of movies um, and he usually plays a big huge goon thug type character but uh so in this movie he's playing a big huge goon thug type character and uh they basically he's left in a room with tom and he's gonna beat tom up and he takes his coat off real weird like he's very strange but he keeps looking at him his mouth's open all the time like he's playing this very dumb character i guess and he uh takes his coat off he starts walking over and Tom goes, wait. And he stops and he's like, okay. 
And Tom takes his coat off slowly. And then he picks up a chair and he hits him in the fucking head <laughs> with the chair. And the guy just goes, Tom. <laughs> and what, Tom? Walks out the door. And it's and then, you know, then uh the other one of the other goons comes in and he rushes Tom. He, they have this fight. So yeah, they start beating and the bag out of each other. In, that leads straight into a, a thing you mentioned earlier, which was all the, the police come flying. Yeah, one of the first it. of several police mm-hmm. running in. That's I feel like we wouldn't be doing it justice to this movie if we didn't mention the I I think of it as hyper reality of cops coming in and yeah. shutting things down because it is very seriously cops coming in and shutting it down, but it's them just beating the ever living shit out of people and taking gun violence to the extreme. There's another as, scene as that cop says, they say make it hurt, we make it hurt. There's another <laughs> there's the other scene where they come up to the speakeasy bar and they like throw like a smoke like a yeah, they throw like some sort Molotov. of like a Molotov yeah. or something into it and just wait. And then one guy comes out. And it's there's a line there's a line of forty cops just outside there. One guy comes out, he just gets shot and killed, and then some guy in there just starts shooting at him, and then every single cop just starts unloading. The cops open up a turret, they start shooting at him with this military grade turret. It is so over the top, and I think that is one of my favorite parts about the whole movie is the gun violence being so comedic Mm -hmm. that like gives it the lighthearted feel that you're not as again we'll talk about it more but in goodfellas when there is gun violence in goodfellas it's it's genuinely concerning it's a it's there's there's sadness to it there's problems to it it's worrisome you you lose characters you like with this to go back to Jumping all over the place, but going back to Danny Boy, like I mentioned at the very start of this, that Danny Boy shootout at Leo's house where the guys get killed in the first floor of Leo's house. He's sitting there listening to Danny Boy on vinyl in his room. Two mobsters are walking up with machine guns and... Leo somehow snakes his way out of it. He crawls under the bed, shoots one of the mobsters in the foot. Shoot the house is in the fucking head. The house is burning down while this is happening. And Leo jumps out the window, leaves one of the mobsters in the house. He's looking around for Leo and he starts Leo starts shooting him in the back from the window. And while he's spraying him with bullets in the back, the guy's flailing around and shooting all over the place. For a solid 20 seconds. Right. And then Leo fucking in his bathrobe, and I'm guessing slippers, mind you. They were slippers. He slipped them on. They zoomed in on his feet while he (laughs) put them on. That was like a pivotal part of the scene. He's like, oh, fuck, I got to do this now. Are you kidding me? (laughs) He starts fucking walking across the lawn, just fucking shooting. It's oh my god! It's, it's unbelievable, it's and this classic. great Danny yep. Boy is playing. It's but classic. but the whole the whole idea of spraying someone with a gun, and they just start flailing and shooting all over the place, appears multiple times in the movie. Yep. And it seems to be. And I honestly think I remember seeing it in Oh Brother and some other Coen Brothers movies. Yeah. It, I think that might be something. Honestly, I'm gonna have to revisit it. That's the movie I would most is like spiritually a successor to this film oh brother they're, they're cl- yeah that film takes that period of time in, in totally history and does the same treatment to it um and it's it's what i love about that is that it's like this oversized world 
that is ripe for movies and it's it they have such a uh, ability to take these like callbacks to a really classic era of cinema but modernize it at the same time right like, there's a lot of the stuff in this movie that feels like it comes from like john ford westerns and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that that's it's i mean obviously they're film they're film school guys so that's probably why you know right and, yeah they're uh, they're film nerds right they, that, that's another thing that you notice big time about both these movies compared to imperial dreams they're these are are you know these educated film school guy movies they're really really good because of that but also they lack a bit of reality because of that at the same time right and um this movie in particular is is so far removed from reality but it is Amer it's really american legend it it feels like you know shakespeare in a way for america because, it really does yeah it's t it's adding a comedic bit but also a it, it's i mean I, I mentioned dick tracy earlier and that's what i'm always reminded of when i watch this because it feels like it could have been an episode of Dick Tracy in the way that, you know, the only characters that ever get hurt or die are the ones that aren't necessary. The bad guys and the good guys are always there to fight each other next week. And there's a bit of that. There's a bit comic book cartooniness to this movie that really makes it unique. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of mob movies that are that fall into this category. Basically. So for for these movies that we're talking about right mm -hmm. now, for the. I'll leave out the one we haven't got to, <laughs> but with Imperial Dreams, that feels like genuine real life. That feels like absolute real life. Uh, Goodfellas feels like real life, but there is a little bit of well, I, a little bit of inflation to it. I have it. a thing to say about that, but go on. Yeah, that, yeah, that's why I kind of just try to slide it yeah. in without going much, because we got a lot to say. I have a lot to say about that. But this one, like you said, comic booky is the perfect way to describe it. It's still somehow in the roots of it feels like real life. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a reality to it. Things like that genuinely happened, but the hyper realism of them makes it a bit comedic, a bit lighthearted, right. a bit more digestible to the everyday viewer. Right. It's also, which it's is like Paul Bunyan. But, exactly. You know, it's like you knew something right. sort of happened, but like the man didn't fucking. There's a, there a really <laughs> tall guy, all right? He yeah. made fucking killer pancakes that he rode on a fucking ox that was like light gray. Yeah, you know, and that did became smashed through a cave. Yeah. Like he <laughs> fucking mountain. didn't actually. He wasn't actually a giant. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Or but yeah, and it's it's just over oversized version of the story. Exactly. The thing about Goodfellas to me is, and I'm just gonna go right into this because we Fuck might it. as well start talking about yeah, it. Yeah, we gotta. Um, Goodfellas is is photographs that's what i always say. that movie is a series of photographs that you're seeing brought to life and if you go back go back and watch that movie and just think uh, think about nothing else but the color that you're seeing on screen and and the the scenes that scorsese is is setting up for you it's Fucking, it's a bunch of photographs. It's a bunch of like Renaissance paintings almost. And they're every it's time so I watch it, I'm like, good. yeah, I'm blown away by how he does it. Um, one particular one that sticks out to me is when uh, they're, um, uh, oh my God, Lorraine Bracco is bringing the kids in to see him in jail. 
and there's this one scene where it's like a bunch of families in a waiting room and she's like right in the middle of it it literally is a modern renaissance painting brought to life it's like a snapshot of a moment in time Another movie that we mentioned earlier tonight that did that, it totally stole everything that it was trying to do from this movie, <laughs> was Blow. Um, and I think there's a lot of films that have come out since 1990 that are the directors are, whether or not they even know it, are 100% influenced by what Goodfellas did. And I'm not even right. talking about movies that are even about crime or the mob. I'm not even talking about movies that are for adults only. I'm talking about kids fucking movies too. <laughs> this movie is so influential on film that it's not even funny. And when you watch it now, it feels like someone could have made it this year. Because Absolutely. it's still so influential on film. The fourth wall breaking, the fucking Yeah, in the, the courtroom. Yep, the, yep. the soundtrack that that is a modern way of showing you time passing through every biop now does that every single biop ever that has come out since 1990 is just good fellas with whoever they're they're doing it with right and it's because it he did it so well that like it's inspired just so many generations of directors and of just people who work on film in general um so before we get yeah. too before we get too into good fellas cuz i feel like we're about to take of like a swan dive. We're going to take a swan dive off like a 50-foot diving board just into this yes. fucking masterpiece of a movie because yes. it's so fucking good. We mentioned earlier that um, Miller's Crossing came out two days, three days before uh, Goodfellas. Yep. And so I didn't look at the budget and the uh, retail for Goodfellas, but... The budget for Miller's Crossing was uh, it was a fourteen million dollar budget Correct. to make that movie. It pulled five million in the box office mm. because it came out less than three days before fucking Goodfellas. Yes, and I feel so bad for Miller's Crossing because that movie's fantastic. It's it's so fun. There's a lot of great aspects to it. Yes, it's is. a lighthearted mafia movie. It just came out at such an unfortunate time. Because the best mafia movie ever came out two days later. And I also think it's a big thing about star power. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the Coen brothers were not established no, at that point. No. They and, weren't a big uh, Hollywood face. Yeah. Scorsese was. I would, And also, honestly, in that movie, probably... I mean, Albert. other than Albert Finney... There aren't a lot of like big name actors yet. Like John right, right, right. Isn't a yeah. Big John Turturro became a big name actor. Steve Buscemi became right, a big name right. actor. These people were not established at right. that point. Yeah, and it, De Niro and Joe Pesci. Exactly. Much bigger movie. You get that right. fucking freak Ray Liotta. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of like I feel like this was Ray Liotta's like stepping out. This was like when he really started to hit the market. Cause uh, so. For in for for a little for instance on you since you just mentioned the budget of uh, most crossing Goodfellas made uh, was made for twenty five million and made forty six yeah uh, so so that's basically double your profit whereas Miller's Crossing made less than right. half right. of their budget 
and I think that uh, it, it like I I mean uh, I'm just gonna say it fuck you guys in the group for picking this movie because like obviously it's gonna fucking win like yeah this is easily my favorite movie of the three come on man seriously should have made this fun and unpredictable yeah i was like trying to even think of a i was like i should have just picked goodfellas then i would have won but seriously this i hate when they win (laughs) um so this movie actually strangely enough uh is another one of those that got totally spurned um by the academy except for uh joe pesci who honestly if anybody deserved an oscar for this movie and you couldn't do if you could only give one oscar this movie you might i might actually just say give the oscar to joe pesci oh a million percent dude he is fucking so good in this movie he his range is amazing and he does what i think is so important in films like this he perfectly embodies the dangerous hateable lovable character all at once he's all these things he's like a whirlwind of emotion going on all at once yeah he's his, a fiery little mole rat well his scene his scene obviously his most famous scene in the movie the the you think i'm uh, yeah, like, funny like a yeah. clown in that scene he shows you how scary he can be you also see in a bunch of different times how unhinged he can be he, he's killed people obviously the whole reason why they're in trouble is because he killed billy bats yeah he's got a super right. sharp fuse but also then you see him acting with his mom, a.k.a. Martin Scorsese's actual mom. Is that who it is? Yeah. I did not know that. Oh, get ready wow. for this. Get ready for crazy. this. His dad's in the movie, too. What? Yes. You, you know. got to be kidding me. The guy, so he plays Vinny, who is the guy who doesn't, he's not the dude who shoots Joe Pesci in the head. He's the old white-haired guy with glasses who's with the dude who shoots him in the head the dude who shoots him in the head is mr big from wayne's world you've got to be (laughs) kidding me what is going on but so um (laughs) spoiler alert (laughs) yeah yeah boom (laughs) (laughs) but um but yeah so he's also also the guy he was gonna get made (laughs) (laughs) he's also then the guy who calls uh, Robert De Niro because he says who's Vinny who's Vinny you know right 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 tells him Joe Pesci's dead so yeah so but Martin Scorsese put both his parents in this movie which to me proves that if you want to make the best movie of your career put both your parents in it because this is the only movie where both his parents were in it okay yeah just need to bring it well. back though you know well the poor thing you know we got I hit him in his uh, we hit the deer in his paw what do you call it the paw the, the paw, paw the, the, the hoof the hoof got caught in that grill. Oh. I gotta, I gotta hack it off. Ooh, 
Come on, it's a sin. You're gonna leave it there, you know. So anyway, I'll, I'll bring your knife back after I do. Anyway. Delicious. Thank you. Why don't you get yourself a nice girl? I get, get a nice one almost every night, ma. Yeah, but get yourself a girl so you could settle down. That's what I, I settle mean. down almost every night, but then in the morning I'm free. I love you. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I'll just settle down. <laughs> How's your friend Henry there? Henry, what's the matter? You don't talk too much. What you talk a little bit? You been quiet for me. You don't eat much. You don't talk much. Uh, I'm just listening. What's the matter? Something wrong with you? You remind what? me of when we were kids in Paris, used to visit one another, and there was this man. He would never talk. He would just sit there all night and not say a word. So they said to him. What's the matter, Compari? Don't you talk? Don't you say anything? He says, what am I going to say? That my wife two times me? So she says to him, shut up. You're always talking. <laughs> <laughs> but in Italian, it sounds much nicer. Well, you know? the yeah. That's it. What's that mean? Ludo means he's, he's content to be a jerk. Ah. Well, and he doesn't care who knows it. He's did, content. Uh, did Tommy ever tell you about my painting? No. Look at this. That's beautiful. Well, I like this one. The dog, one dog goes one way and the other dog goes the other way. Well, one is going east and the other one is going west. So what? And this guy's saying, what do you want from me? This guy's got a nice head of white hair. Look how beautiful is the dog. It looks the same. Yeah. Looks like somebody we know. Without the beard. No, it's him. Oh, It's him. So yeah, um, and yeah, his mom is fantastic. Her little, her little Italian story about the the old couple is one of the best parts of the movie. Oh yeah, and, huge. But my favorite part of the movie is her painting and Joe Pesci's reaction to it when he goes, he goes, yeah, you got this dog looking this way, you got that dog looking the other way, <laughs> then you got this guy here going, hey, what do you want from me? <laughs> That's the fucking funniest line. It's so, every time, it gets me. It gets me every Dude, time. Dude, and then it, when he goes, hey, uh, we know this guy, and, like, and oh, it cuts oh, to the the trunk yep, yep. where, like, the guy they just oh, fucking yeah. whacked. Yeah, exactly. and, uh, yeah with Billy's in yeah, the trunk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're, like, laughing. Billy Bat. Oh, it does look like him. And then, yeah, the camera goes out the window. Dude, he is, he does so much cool stuff with the camera in this movie. Um, I, I mean, most people I know have seen this movie. If you have not seen Goodfellas, go see it. What is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> what the, I'm sorry, Kevin. I gotta, it's what a, the hell is wrong with you if you haven't seen Goodfellas, like, man? I'm not gonna sit here and say it doesn't have its issues. It's definitely a movie that I think could be taken as racist sometimes. It's, Absolutely. You know? Um, it does have a couple of very racist characters at the very least. Uh, and the N word is thrown around a couple times by these characters, but I, um, it, I think what it does is more present to you how the world really was in the time the movie is taking place. Yeah. I feel like it's unfortunate to look at it and hear those things at time when you're looking at it loosely and not thinking about it cinematically right, but and i don't want to say that and it creates the real world then like that's exactly you know, i mean i basically whole... like like django unchained right you right, know right. like django unchained would not be such a realistic movie had tarantino not went to such an extreme right and but i also think this movie does a good job like in this movie he didn't go too far with that idea he definitely presented that like for instance joe pesci is definitely not okay with black people or at least he acts like he is but he definitely is still racist yeah but those weren't their like that wasn't their 
right. problem. Was that wasn't their plot point like, or anything. One, you of, know? one of the great examples of that it, it was of how the world that this like you know La Cosa Nostra as they say this, yeah the world that not just Italians but a lot of people are, are living at this time is is really personified by his whole story about she's prejudiced against Italians can you believe that that scene really like sets up to me like what Joe Pesci's character doesn't understand about the world you know that like he can sit there and argue with his girlfriend about how she says that I oh I could see how white girls might be into Sammy Davis Jr. and he can take offense to that but at the same time, he doesn't get it how a Jewish girl would be like, oh, I, I don't know about Italian guys. Right, you know? right, right. Exactly. And just not wanting to go out with him. He's like, she's prejudiced against Italians. <laughs> you know? And so it really it's creates awful insecurity. <laughs> right. But it, it creates that world of us and them that that is so important to understanding the the um, what does he call him? I mean, Goodfellas. But he, what's he? Wise guy. Right, right, right. You know, yep. And uh, they definitely established the us very heavily in Goodfellas oh, with yeah. the Italian being what what you need to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And especially to I hate to jump around. We fuck it. We do it all the time. Yeah, jump around all to. over the place. We're not going to just um, sit here and tell you the plot. at the end when um, they're talking. Not at the end necessarily, but when they're sitting at the diner, uh, Jimmy and Henry are sitting at the diner, and Tommy's getting made before he gets whacked. Before they yeah, know that, he's getting whacked, and yeah, he's getting whacked. And first of all, that scene where he's getting whacked is hilarious, where the bullet goes through him yeah, and blood's like, shooting out like a water fountain. It's yeah, hilarious. I just love how he's like, "Oh shit!" Right before he gets shot. Yeah, it's, it, he knows. He knows. Exactly. Um, but he, he mentions that thing where he's like, "Uh, yeah, it's like Tommy's getting made because like he's full Italian, you know, like I'm." I'm like only half. They're they're both like half half Mm -hmm. Irish, so they would never get made. Right. So they they sit there and they're like, ah, fuck. Like we're in, but like we're not in. Right. They know that they're not completely in the niche that they need to be. uh, Because he also says like it's almost like he talking about Jimmy Conway, uh, Robert De Niro. He says it's almost like he's getting made. Yeah, Um, yeah. And I think that that's also another interesting thing. There is where. uh, Jimmy says, "You're gonna. This guy's gonna be our boss one day." And the weird like change that the movie has shown you, because if you go back to the beginning, you first see Tommy as this little kid, and you see Henry as this little kid, and now they're adults. But they're Jimmy has always been Robert De Niro, so he's yeah, like. The- you think of him as being like an elder figure. You know? The power shift is very weird mm-hmm. because you're introduced to Jimmy when Henry's still the kid. Yeah. So you're introduced to Jimmy. I think you on screen see him the first time when Henry gets caught in prison. Or, no, no, it might no, no, be a no. little bit not not caught yeah, in prison, no, but in court some, rather. Uh, but I think it's a little before that. Well, okay, so the, I want to kind of talk about the editing in this movie a little bit because yep. it's amazing, and there's a lot of great editing tricks that he does in the whole beginning of the movie is very very important in a subliminal way because of the freeze frames that keep happening yeah yeah, yeah. and uh each freeze frame is a lesson that uh henry has learned in his you know tutelage so to speak in his life um there's uh two particular ones that are i think most important one of them is the freeze frame of his father beating him Mm -hmm. which uh, not only is, you know, at very surface level, it's like, okay, that's why he becomes abusive. But even deeper than that, it's also him realizing or beginning to equate that 
with that power, you know, with with violence and violence with power. So like that creates this idea, you know, and if you also look at it, all of the freeze frames out of all the freeze frames, that's the only negative one. It's like, you know, him running away from the cars after he blew them up. Yeah, the explosion. Him him smiling with all the guys after he gets out of jail. The other really, really, really important freeze frame, maybe one of the most important shots of this whole movie, is when he first meets Jimmy. And it's because it it reinforces the other important theme to Henry, and that's that money is just as powerful as violence. And it's so Jimmy... Gives him some money. Yeah, slips him some money. And then it's a freeze frame of Polly and Jimmy looking at him. And it's not just Jimmy's face, which is like, hey, it's Polly also looking like that. It's it's showing it's it's literally showing the viewer. It's almost like um the the I think it's called the money counters or something. It's a Rembrandt painting with these two characters that like draw your look in because they're looking at you in a jovial way, I guess is the way to describe it. It makes you it it it's like, hey, you know, here's the money. It's very similar to like the fox from Pinocchio. Yeah, or yeah, like yeah, that, exactly. Know? And it so builds up who Henry is as a is going to be as a character and what he has learned as a character. Fucking brilliant. And he doesn't just stop there either. Editing wise, man, the whole end of the movie, the way that it's edited, that whole sequence of him delivering the guns and and you're trying to get the drugs and he keeps giving you time stamps and he's being followed by helicopters and he's picking up his brother the way that that the editing changes from everything that's been in the movie it's it's it it's a work of fucking brilliance the The the, fact that didn't win best picture is a robbery it's unbelievable it's highway robbery the editing is unbelievable and there are a couple like real prominent single shot scenes that Mm. really 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 like melt in my brain from the first time I ever saw the movie years and years ago where it's just a long long crawl of one shot like the one of the times they go through the bamboo lounge the first time it's the first time you're introduced Wait, to you're the bamboo about the, and then he kissed me yeah yeah, yeah yeah and okay. it, it just walks mm-hmm. through the entire bar goes through everything everybody's seeing each other and it's one single camera shot the bold, and then the power move if there ever was yes unbelievable <laughs> and then the first time he goes on a date um what's it called the first time he goes on a date with her and he takes her to the with fucking Ken, with Karen you mean yeah he takes he takes Karen to the the club that I I don't think they ever Copa, name it I think it was the Copacabana the, the oh yeah yeah, yeah. it's the Copa, yeah the Copacabana the where all the musicians are playing yep, yep. right at the stage yeah because we also we have uh the Velvet Fog yeah uh, Mel Torme it's not actually him but right. you also have the actual Henny Youngman the Jewish comedian yeah yeah he's on stage like doing his one yeah the one liners yeah actually Henny Youngman that's dude. unbelievable that's the real guy yeah <laughs> but so they they take him through the whole thing is there's a big line outside mm-hmm. they get like they get dropped off and uh, Karen's like oh you're gonna leave your car and he's like yeah yeah, yeah you'll take care of it the valet and see the big line to get in the front door and Henry's like oh we'll, we'll go this way and they walk down the flight of stairs and it's this one like seven minute shot it's an amazing and it's just him shot. walking through these halls and seeing these people and slipping every single person he sees a yep, hundred yep. and they're going through the kitchen and they're cutting out the back and the guy brings a table to him and every oh, yeah. single person yep. is saying hello to him and that's one of the first times in the movie that you see Henry's real like 
leverage and appreciation and respect in the family. Every time I come here, every time you do, what you want? As you would call it, because it really is a family. It's they, they do their dinners. It's they know each other's mothers. They know their wives. They know everybody. And as Karen says right after that scene, he's 21 years old. He's a 21-year-old yep. <laughs> kid, and he's slipping every single person hundreds. He's, yep. oh, my God, it's crazy. Yeah, that particular tracking shot, I mean, it's probably one of the most famous in the history of shots like that. Oh, easily. Yeah. I feel like it influenced film to infinity and beyond oh, yeah. at that well, point. There's so much stuff now that is done with, like, you know, uh, a mobile cameraman like that now. Which, uh, like another, another one of my favorite tracking shots was actually was done with a crane, but is another amazing one is in Kill Bill. Mm -hmm. um, the, the scene where she first goes to the, the uh, Crazy 88s, the house, whatever it's called, the house yep. of leaves or whatever, and she, the, the camera's following through her. That's an amazing one. But what's so amazing about this one is more, like in Kill Bill, that particular shot is more amazing because of its technicality and its set building. This is more important because of what it, it represents for the characters. This is very much uh, like it's it's very much represents how Henry is showing his power and it keeps getting he keeps showing more and more power. You know, as you said, it starts with him giving money him. He, he says, hey, oh, I always see you guys here and stuff. He's showing his power to Karen. But then it literally leads to him getting the best table at the restaurant right in front, right in front of, the of the stage. And it's, it's as you said, it really wasn't even a table. Him. They literally pulled a table out yep. and put it there yep. for exactly. him. That is how powerful this little fucking kid exactly. is. Exactly. And uh, it's it's amazing. It's it's definitely something that I think you see nowadays in film and television all the time. Um, and. I mean, Scorsese, obviously, when you're just talking about directors, he's a guy that always comes up. Uh, and you, there's a lot of films by him, I think you could say, are like his greatest film. I think this one is is the best film he ever made. Um, and there's some other interesting stuff that I actually noticed about this uh, that I hadn't really ever thought about before when I watched it this time. One in particular thing, <clears throat> and I'm sure other people have heard so, you know, I'm not saying this like I'm the first person who ever thought of this, but one really interesting thing that I've never really heard people talk about is the fact that Billy Bats gets buried, right? Then they have to go dig him up and move him because they're building condos. And then at the end of the movie, quote unquote, that's where Henry's living is in the condos. And What's so important about that is that the movie never says, oh, he's living in the same place. But it shows you that because when you first see the condos, you see a bulldozer and a plot of land. And it immediately brings your mind back to that scene where they're fucking digging up the body. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so it's like sh almost saying he's literally like like it's it's showing how like time marches on and leaves people behind. Yeah. And that like you're not modern forever. And that Henry, in retelling his story, is modern for a totally different time that doesn't exist anymore. And all those people, as the the rolling credits will tell you at the end of the movie, are yeah, they give the list of everything. Right. Yeah, but they're either dead 
or they're in, in jail. jail and now dead because the guy I don't actually think his name was actually Jimmy Conway. I forget. I'm pretty sure they gave him a different name. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they, they like yeah. respect identity. I'm pretty but sure he was in. Well, I think it was more like they didn't want to get in trouble um, legally. But uh, yeah, because uh, get whacked. <laughs> we don't want Martin right. Scorsese to get whacked. Exactly. <laughs> but um, I think that I'm pretty sure that he has passed away now. The guy that he was based on. So I got a question for you. So since we've already said um, this movie did not win any Academy Awards except for Joe Pesci won Best Supporting Actor for his amazing role as Tony. What was this? Sorry to. What do you think? Actually, bring your question first, then I have a well, follow-up question. My question is, what movie? Okay, so what movie do you think won Best Picture that year? That was gonna be my question. <laughs> what was it up against that year? So it was 1990. Well, I'll give you. Let me see. Give me a sec here. I'll give you the nominees. Give me the rundown of the nominees, and I'll tell you my prediction of Best Picture. And it, is, it's uh, clearly not Goodfellas, which is highway fucking robbery. No, it, isn't. it isn't. Now you also have to remember that this was back in the time when. Um, uh, they had way less. I think they had five. Yeah, they had five nominees. Okay. So let me. I'll give you the nominees. The nominees are Goodfellas, as we know, The Godfather Part Three, Ghost. Yeah, fucking Ghost. Is nominated for Best Picture. Wow. Dances with Wolves, wink, fucking wink, and Awakenings. Those dances with wolves. I knew it was Dance with Wolves that had to fucking be. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, oh, my God. Well, uh, obviously, also wasn't The Godfather Part 3. No, it wasn't. Reel it in. I know, right? How did... Th- that's what I want to know. How did Ghost and fucking... And, aw- dude, uh, honestly, Awakenings is a piece of shit. Yeah, too, fuck I, that. I love De Niro, but that movie sucks, too. So, the Dances with Wolves... As bad as that movie is, because I'm another. I also cannot stand Kevin Costner. The only movie, I think. Wait, was he in Bill Durham? Yeah, yeah. That's the only movie I like him in. Okay. Every other movie I've seen him in, I just like. Like fuck this guy. (laughs) (laughs) So like, Dance with Wolves, I was like, fuck this shit. But seriously, like that list. Ugh. And what pisses me off even more is that let's go down best actor. So Jeremy Irons won that year for Reversal of Fortune, which is literally a movie I think I'm the only person who's ever seen it. Uh, <laughs> you're the only person in this room who's seen it, that's for sure. Exactly. Um, the other the other nominees were Kevin Costner for Death in the Wolves. Yeah. Uh, Gerard Depardieu. Yeah. Uh, for Serrano de Bergac, and Richard Harris for The Field, which I also haven't seen. Feels and a good movie. Robert De Niro for Awakening. You've got to be kidding me. It's like, what the fuck? They put him in for Awakening? What the fuck, man? But I got to say, too, I mean, Andy Garcia got nominated for Godfather 3. So I don't know what was going on. There was not a lot of good movies, I guess, that year. So what what else was Goodfellas nominated for? So it was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for... Tell me that's not it. I'm going to freak out if that was it that year. No, no, no. It was up uh, Best director okay good if it wasn't i'd throw up guess who it lost to oh god kevin costner dances with wolves you've got to be kidding (laughs) me this is fucking unbelievable you're you're too young to remember how many oscars dances with wolves oh my god if Um, anybody listening to this is a hitman i'm officially putting a hit on kevin costner right 
Um, another snub. I was uh, pretty pissed off. Lorraine Bracco did not get a nomination. Yeah, uh, that's was, whack. Yeah, yeah. That's was, whack. Now, Kathy Bates won for Misery that year. Okay, that's... That's understandable. That's respectable. That was a but great you, film. You also had uh, Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, which I also understand. I also really like Pretty Woman. <laughs> but you have Joanne fucking Woodward in Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. Oh, yeah. pump the fucking brakes, son. No one's ever seen that movie. No. Ever. Fucking pump um, the brakes. But yeah, so as I said, Joe Pesci won. Let's see. I mean, Goodfellas also, I mean, it had best screenplay that it lost to uh, Dances with Wolves. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm going to yeah, shoot this it, movie in the it face. It did not. It I'm going to whack this well. movie. I'm going to whack you. It did not do as well as it deserved, definitely. Yeah, um, it sucks. I Here's the full list. It was nominated for picture, director, editing, uh, adapted screenplay, uh, oh, yeah, adapted screenplay oh, for sure. Just, no, I'm sorry. Lorraine Bracco did, she got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Okay. Because apparently the lead actress in that movie has to be a supporting actress, a supporting apparently. Actress. Yeah. Unbelievable. Even though, another interesting thing about this. So I heard this take on this movie that this movie was uh, for men or only could be understood by men. And I can understand where the that idea is coming from because it is a very masculine movie definitely however i think it's very 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 interesting that the voiceover in the movie is only uh given to two people and that is our main character henry and, and karen karen his wife yep. and when one of the best parts of the movie, honestly, is when she comes in as a voiceover. Yeah, when she takes over and you don't expect her yep. voice to be coming it's in. Jarring. It's unbelievable, yeah. It also, it also, I think, shows that Scorsese understood how important that role or that character is to the overall story mm -hmm. and decided to give her a bigger voice than just, oh, she's just the woman dealing with him. Like She has a more fleshed-out character arc that... Because I think it's really interesting how it like goes. It's essentially almost like the movie has gone back and shown you Henry, but then it's almost like she's jumping in and interjecting and going, "Wait a minute, let me go back and let me tell you what I went through with Henry." In a way, and I think that's it. It's borderline making it feel like you're you're listening to the book that it was based on, written by the actual right. Henry Hill. Um, yeah, man, and it's funny that you mentioned that book is because. Uh, the reason that Scorsese made this movie is when he was making The Color of Money, yep. he was reading that book, Wise Guys, and he thought that it was the best portrayal of what's I think I have the, the quote right here. Yeah, of like the gangster. Yeah, he goes, uh, he thought it was the most honest portrayal of gangsters he had ever read. Yeah. I, I would definitely say that this film uh, does that. Like, one of the things that I've always felt really interesting uh, is the it, it's something that it this film does for gangsters what Tarantino did for hitmen with Pulp Fiction, like it it in a way like humanizes these characters so much and f makes you forget like how evil they're supposed to be or whatever how bad they're supposed to be. Like one great example is one of my favorite scenes of the movie is when we have another actor who
who was not super famous yet, who gets to say I was in Goodfellas, is Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, man. <laughs> yep. Oh, they did he's him like, dirty. Uh, they did like, him dirty. Yeah, he's like Harry Dean Stanton in in The Godfather. He's like not famous yet, and he's there for two seconds. What was his name in Goodfellas? Fuck. Uh, Stax. Stax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're Stax. Because the guitar player. Yeah. And there's also another character named Tony Stax, but I don't think they ever say his name in the movie that I remember. If they do, it's very. It's maybe at the very beginning. And he is. Um, uh, oh my God! What's his name from The Sopranos? Um, he's a uh, Polly, Polly Walnuts yep. from uh, Polly Walnuts. Yeah. He his name is Tony Stacks, but yes, yeah, so Stacks Edwards, who got high and forgot to hide the van at the big heist in that scene. So Joe Pesci and um, the other dude there with the fucking curly. Carbone. Carbone, yeah. Carbone. They come Hanging in. up in the meat freezer, <laughs> exactly. dude. Oh, my God. But so they they come in to uh, pick him up, but really they're going to kill him. And he fucking, Joe Pesci goes and he shoots him. And then he walks out and he had told Carbone to go make coffee. Yeah, that was one of my favorite lines. Yeah, we'll make that goes, fucking coffee to like, go, Carbone. Yeah, take that coffee to go. And he starts walking out the door and he goes, I'm not fucking, I'm kidding. It's a fucking <laughs> joke. It was so it's it's just like it's just like what Tarantino was able to do in Pulp Fiction with that Royale with cheese scene where yeah, these see, guys are literally talking about what food what fucking Burger King is like in France as they, or well not Burger King because he didn't go to Burger King right but right. you know they're talking about McDonald's in a France Royale as, with cheese as they drive to fucking kill a bunch of dudes like and so it totally yeah they're just being total goofballs I mean and Joe Pesci does it multiple times and mm-hmm. when they're playing poker in that oh, yeah. room oh, yeah. and he shoots the kid oh, yeah. when he asks Spina. him to get a drink yeah yeah also. From the fucking Sopranos. That was Christopher from the Sopranos. Right, yep, yep. <laughs> well, so he shoots him in the foot the first time, and then he gets all, excuse me, healed up, and then next time he says, like, oh, like, fuck you, yeah, like, why Tommy. Why don't you fuck off, Tommy? Yeah, why don't you and fuck off, Tommy? He just kills him. He goes, what, he fucking, like, mouthed off to me. Like, what the fuck? Yep. Like, um, yeah, they just, actually, he just brushes it off as, like, like killing these dudes and then just tries to, like, yep. Hop yep. back into a game of poker. Yep, and and but even it's another weird thing there is that like Robert De Niro is also kind of like ah what the like, like it, it's like that a, yeah I feel like that was one of the pivotal points where you see Robert De Niro's character be like okay but he also kind of like lets him kind of he slap on the wrist it's like ah yeah you did that I feel like he does idiot, that I feel like he does yeah. that because he knows he's that, gonna get yeah yeah like he's he knows what's happening yeah way, exactly yeah. and he knows that if he fucking steps out of line like clearly this guy's gonna mm-hmm. snap. Mm-hmm. I also will bring up, since I was just mentioning The Sopranos, there's also a very brief moment where you can see uh, the actor who played Big Pussy in The Sopranos. He is uh, moving some coats in the, the the restaurant that Joe Pesci flips out in. And when they're like going through into the back room, you see him moving some coats. Oh, really? Think, yeah. So there's three actors I know of who were in The Sopranos. Who are no shit. Movies. Wow. Unbelievable. There's also uh, a My Movie's Better uh, heavy hitter. Because I mentioned him in our episode about the movie Street Trash. Um, Mr. Duran is in this movie. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to put in his scene right here because it is one of my personal favorites in the movie. He is the restaurant owner. And he goes to tell uh, Polly that he has um, 
been having he you know having trouble with Tommy. I'm worried. I mean, I'm hearing all kinds of fucking bad things. I mean, he's treating me like I'm a fucking half a fig or something. I'm gonna wind up a lamist. I gotta go on a fucking lamb in order to get away from this guy. This ain't right, Paulie. I mean, I can't go here. I can't go there. You think you're the only one? I talked to them a million times. They don't listen. If you tell him, he'll he'll stop. I mean, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna wind up being declared an MIA. They're gonna find me in the back of a car somewhere in the weeds. Come on. You know this fucking Tommy all your life. Who knows better than you? This cocksucker's an arch criminal. I mean, when I leave my house in the morning, before I get to the car, I'm looking over both shoulders. This is no way to live. You know I'm no fence jump. I'm around you all my life. You tell me what I gotta do. Whatever the fuck I gotta do, I'm gonna do, no? What could I do? If there was something I could do, don't you think I would do it? You know me. I would like to help you out. Oh, Sonny, tell him what we talked about. You think it's all right? Yeah, come on. What? Tell him, you know, look, I... Maybe you could come in with me, you know, take a piece of this fucking joint. It'd be good. What are you talking about? What do you mean, the restaurant? Yeah, I mean, this is a classy place. I mean, look at the layout. When you've been in there a million times, you know what it looks like. I mean, it, Tommy taking over this fucking joint is like putting a silk hat on a, on a pig. I mean, I don't mean no disrespect on Henry, but that, that's the way it is. I know you're his friend. Uh, I'm begging you. What can I say? I, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What do you want from me? I don't know what. I don't know nothing about the restaurant business. Nothing. All I know is to sit down and order a meal. I don't know how to make a restaurant. Uh, not for you. It's just a place to hang. You know, I mean, the chef is great. You got to, the fucking shows are good. There's a lot of who is coming in here all the time. I like to help you out. Look, what, what do you want from me? What am I going to do? Tommy's a bad kid. He's a bad seed. What am I supposed to do? Shoot him? Yeah, that wouldn't be a bad idea. And so, yeah, that's one of my favorite fucking scenes. The way his delivery of lines is so great. Just the way he's like, hey, come on, you know, you bust, you bust my balls here. Like, it just, it's so, and, and they're like little like business dealing. And then he comes back, he's like, ah, oh, what do you want me to do about it? Like, there's just, there's almost like this lack of communication where so much communication is going on. It's fucking brilliant. Right, right. He, Scorsese, like, hit the jackpot with this movie, and I don't think he even realized it until like after they had already made it and after all the accolades came in like this movie is like one of the few complete films um my only problem with it is that it depresses the shit out of me every time i watch it it makes me sad it's a it's a very fucking sad story yeah. man it's a it's a rise and fall and the fall is very hard and it establishes characters that you really like that you really get invested in and they keep fucking making you sad <laughs> yeah i mean and it's like they they won't whack a character until you've really liked them yeah, pretty much and every time you're like oh i'm like very into this guy they're in a meat cooler mm -hmm. or they're getting whacked yep. right when they're about to get made or they're getting busted or they're yeah. a rat or so we should like, also yeah as you mentioned earlier we should definitely talk about that particular scene with them the uh all the Loose ends are being tied up, and Layla, the coda of Layla. Yeah, yeah, the, the piano exit, man, yes. it's beautiful. Um, which is, and it's very interesting because I think the music in general in this film is brilliant. I kind of mentioned earlier a little bit about it in the way that the, uh, the music is like a timestamp for the movie in a lot of ways. Um, early on, you hear a lot of music that would be more typical for the late 50s and early 60s uh moving on into like late six late 60s early 70s uh like girl group pop there's a ton of girl group music like in the middle of this film taking place coinciding right with the era where it would have been most famous 
leading to a uh, very heavy Rolling Stones soundtrack as the 70s rolls in. I think there's three. Man, plays Monkey Man like yep. multiple times. I think he actually <laughs> plays three or f- there's at least like two or three Stones songs in the movie because there's also, um, I believe, uh, it was can't, not Can't You Hear Me Knocking. There's another Stones song, I'm pretty sure, at some point. And then there's an amazing, like, sweet... Uh, Gimme Shelter. Gimme Shelter, that was the other one, yeah. Yeah, Gimme Shelter and Monkey Man. Yep. Um, and obviously, Scorsese then... Also, he directed uh, Shine a Light, and I think is a big fan of the Rolling Stones in general. Um, so that that... The way that that music plays out is fantastic at first. But on top of that is this... The ending suite of music i guess i would call it i don't even know where it comes from if it was made for the film or not i didn't do enough research on this so sorry about that but there the music when he is delivering the 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 end scene i was talking about earlier with all the the time stamps and him driving around being you know followed by the helicopters and shit the music there is all these like weird cuts it almost feels like a score made by like the rolling stones or something like a rock band score that keeps changing and it ends with this great like fast drum solo sort of thing that ends right as the cops are holding a gun to his head. Right, right, right. Right at the door. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's so, it's so good. I would highly suggest going back and watching that scene and just, just checking out the music that is used in it. So I, uh, I should have done this earlier because I just found this article that is unbelievably useful for talking about the soundtrack where it breaks down every single song and what scene it was used in. And, and I just learned that a song from Miller's Crossing is also in this. Holy Fucking shit. Danny Boy, dude. Oh, you're right. Danny Boy, dude. Maury is singing it to Henry yep. and then to himself right before Jimmy's about yeah. to like off him. And it's a song like Happy Birthday that has to be credited, so it has to even if even though it wasn't like they played a recording of it because he was singing it. Yeah. And he's just like Holy talking about shit. it. And I then right before that is the first uh, right after that is the first Layla. And then Layla comes up again too. Yeah. So the first time Layla comes up, it is uh when dead bodies are being discovered all over right. town. Like the pink Cadillac. Yeah, and then it's like right, and it's like in the in the trash, yep, and like yep, yep. they find Carbone in the freezer, and then they bring Layla back at the end when it's in the end credits. Yeah, yeah. which I feel like that's really important that they they play Layla the first time when you realize everything's falling to shit, and all these people are getting found dead, yep. and you're like, wow, this this mafia is falling apart, and then right. it sort of stabilizes for a little bit. And then it ends up which Henry is, ratting everybody out. Everybody's yeah, going to which jail. Is such an interesting like musical choice when you think of the content of the song and what the like that coda is supposed to mean. I feel like in context of what like Clapton is saying in that song, which is about a girl he is not able to be with because she's literally fucking George Harrison's wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, but unbelievable. She, but like, so, but just that idea of like that coda is like this sort of sweet and, and nostalgic and very like sad sort of, but at the same time, optimistic. It's like 
sad but happy sort of feel to it. There's a very it is. The melody it's, is like that is like the soaring part mm-hmm. of the sad oh, song. Yeah. Totally, totally. And uh, it's always I think like it's it it really backs up the images perfectly. And I mean, Scorsese's really good at that in general. I think uh, all his movies have. He was one of those directors who early on saw the power of soundtracks. And we were kind of talking about that a little bit um, when we were talking about Miller's Crossing. That like Where it's very score-driven, right, and, and a lot this people, is very soundtrack-driven. Exactly, but a lot of people don't even really like know the difference, honestly. Like, and two, I think, two wildly different terms right, that right. get very lightly tossed around. Right. Well, And also, I think that because in like more modern films, like especially directors like Tarantino are so sound, I would say they, they have a soundtrack score more than they have a score and a soundtrack or one. Well, or there's another. literally no score in uh, Goodfellas. Right. I'm pretty sure there's not a single like score as, I mean, there might be hidden in the lava. I'm I'm gonna go ahead and agree with you there because I'm gonna maybe I'll have to like watch it for like the nineteenth no, time I I, I <laughs> and reinvest it. Every musical cue is a pop song. Yeah, I mean they are they are previously recorded yeah. songs. And and uh, that's again like I was said at the top of this. That's also something that has become sort of like standard in Hollywood. Um, Scores are used in particular movies, I feel like, nowadays, but there's a lot of movies that just don't have a score because, like, you can... I mean, in a lot of ways, it makes sense. You can use a a soundtrack as your score, you know? Right. Instead of having... But you can also have both. True, true. (laughs) But, like, if you need, like, something that's going to be like, oh, it's a fight. Right, exactly. Nowadays, a movie will put in, like, some, like, rock and roll song that fits that... Or, like, a metal you know, Metallica. we'll throw the immigrant song we'll in there. It, yeah, or down, <laughs> down with the sickness. <laughs> oh, like, wow. Yeah, when they're like, they're like, hey, we need a dance party. Fucking Skrillex. Oh, like, only. God, That's the only dude. thing you can use. You yeah, know, the, the uns are going right. to start coming into my movies soon. <laughs> it's going to freak me the fuck out. So it's definitely like uh, detrimental in some ways, but um, yeah, actually, here we go. Boom. There is no incidental score, which is kind of what we're talking about. That's like the technical, more technical term. Right. Um, Scorsese chose songs for the soundtrack as he felt obliquely commented on the scene and the characters. Right. He Perfect. only used music that could have been heard at the time, which is, I think, really, really cool way of, of making your film. And um, I think my, personally for me, uh, what is it called again? Uh, Remember by the Shangri-Las is the song yep. that always gets stuck in my head whenever I watch this uh, movie. I, it's been stuck in my head for a couple of days now. I just keep hearing, especially that so 1960s studio guitar riff that comes throughout it. That um, that sounds like it could be in um, it could be in a fucking Beatles record. It could have been on fucking Crosby, Stills and Nash record, like. So it's just such a studio sound and it also kind of it backs up this idea of this like false reality that henry has created with materialism 
mm-hmm. you know that like if like in, it, it, that is also reinforced by a line he has later when he's uh my actually another one of my favorite scenes in the movie the courtroom scene when he says i've never had a social security number or whatever this the only thing i have is oh when he does the fourth wall break right. yeah, right yeah before yeah. that he says the only things i have are my birth certificate and my arrest record and that's a thing that's interesting about the way that the rest of the movie is presented this like false idea of success that he has this this materialistic success that he has gained without actually being a part of society in any meaningful way. And, um, they never paid any taxes, you know, and that actually, that reminds me a little bit too, of like the way they do that in Miller's crossing with the, when he says to the mayor, uh, Oh yeah, I should, I know I should know you. I voted for you seven times last election. You right. Know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, the, so, uh, in, in that, those songs kind of represent that these, these girl group songs that are being, you know, mass marketed in the 1960s during all of this tumultuous time in American history is being totally ignored by pop music in so many ways. Um, and literally, I mean, at this time, the Beatles and bands like that were still ignoring, you know, social issues in favor of making music that would sell. And that is being reinforced in, in this soundtrack as right. also like part of what Henry's world is, you know. For not, it, there's almost no mention of like the civil rights movement or any of that stuff because it there's, didn't. I don't affect, think there was a mention of it. No, because it didn't affect wise guys. Right, they had no part of it. So like, it's not important in that particular story because he had no part of it. They had, they weren't doing anything that had to do with it, you know. Um, and I think that this the the soundtrack is just i mean like you said there's that whole article you can go through and i'm sure dude it's so every it song theme by theme. every song is so situational to the whole thing like there was that uh harry nilson song that oh, yep, jumped yep. into it and it was right at the beginning of like the uh beginning of the end i should say is when it did that first little crawl that was uh it jumps on the screen it says like may 11th 1980 uh, 6 55 yep, yep. a.m and harry's crank and blow at 6 55 <laughs> in the morning yep. and harry nilson's jump into the fire is playing exactly and yeah. it's the beginning of his big day where he's running around he has to like go cook di- he has to pick his brother mm-hmm. up from the hospital mm-hmm. go cook dinner he has to send the babysitter yep. to sell coke. That and scene you also have at one point. The helicopters are following yeah, yeah. him, and he's sitting there driving, just staring. At, at that point, you also hear Sunshine of Your Love. which Oh, yeah, yep, yeah. Which would have been a song he definitely would have heard on the radio while driving that day. Uh, another one, though, my favorite, one of my favorite like musical cuts that happens is when it goes from, I believe it is from these two songs. At least they are in order on the soundtrack. But when it goes straight into Manish Boy by Muddy Waters, when he's like, he takes it, he takes a line of fucking Coke and it's like, bam, bam, and oh, like yeah, it comes in. And it's like the music has gone from one thing to a total different thing. And it's just a zoom in on Ray Liotta's eyes. And it's like he's realizing where he is now. And it's like the whole thing has changed. And I've done drugs before. <laughs> It's a feeling I have felt on certain drugs. Where all of a sudden you're like, "Oh, I'm here now," and I'm not listening to "Sunshine of Your Love" anymore. No, yeah, you know. Um, Yeah, and uh, I also got to throw it in there before you get to what you got to do. Ray Liotta, man, he's skeleton. Oh God, he's like (laughs) he's horrifying to look at, and somehow it's like he's he's a very digestible main character. He 
he was the perfect guy oh, to yeah. be Henry. He's you know, a fantastic he, actor, man. He was an amazing so actor. In this movie. But fuck. Yeah, he's an ugly guy. <laughs> Scary to look at. He is, he's got a. He looks like his mug, his teeth. I don't know, he his, looks like skull, Skeletor. That's what I was. Something about he looks dead. He yeah, looks he dead. He looks like his skin is like receding from his face. I'm not so. convinced that he's not like a Hannibal kind of like <laughs> situation. Exactly. Um, but one other song I wanted to mention that I think uh, was a really really interesting, um, and is like there there. I mean, I could say it a million times my favorite part of this movie. But another one of my favorite. <laughs> my whole the whole movie yeah, is my favorite, favorite part of this movie. movie. <laughs> Shit me. But maybe my my the thing that I would. If I were going to sit down and make a movie, the thing that I would probably steal from this movie or try to steal is the way he starts the film. So to kind of wrap everything up, to go right back to the beginning. So this movie starts with the thing that, like, is their end, our, you know, protagonist character's downfall is at the beginning. But you don't know that that's what it is yet. And then he goes through the whole thing. You know, they, they pull the car over. They... Uh, find out that Billy's still alive, but you don't know who he is and you don't know why, what's right. going on or anything like that. And they, they kill him. And then the camera zooms in on him on Ray Liotta, uh, you know, about to close the trunk and you get a freeze frame. And he says, you know, for as long as I remember, all I wanted to be was a gangster and fucking rags to riches by Tony Bennett comes blaring in those fucking horns, dude. And it, it, it's it's a it's a rewind and how many fucking things have you seen that do that at a, at, that they go it's all so right fucking good. yeah it happens in television shows like all the time where it's like we need to set you up so we're going to start the episode with the end you know near to the end of the episode or whatever and then rewind and the by rewinding we're going to play a piece of music that literally brings you back to where we're going Right, especially right, right. especially in a case like this where you're literally going back 30 40 years into this this character's you know yeah you, you literally go to his childhood exactly. <laughs> it's it's such an amazing like series of of editing audio and video wise and it it's um, it's maybe the most poignant thing that has been done in cinema like since 1990 and again like i've mentioned so many times it is a this movie in general has affected so much stuff, but you can even pick out like points of the movie, things that that were done that in the movie. so many other movies do because exactly. of that. Like I can't think of many other, uh, just off the top of the head, I can't think of too many other specific ones that do that. Where the first crawl scene is the pinnacle scene that establishes the end of the line conflict, yep. and then retreats you back t- to build the whole story. But Reservoir Dogs is that. That's rev- yep, Reservoir exactly. Dogs does the same exact yep. thing where it puts you in the heat of the moment and then brings you right back yep. to the beginning brings and just pushes you forward. Yep. And yep. a movie like that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Goodfellas. Exactly. Well, actually, yeah, I mean, Reservoir Dogs kind of jumbles it up a little bit differently. They, Yeah, but, I mean, they, they jumble it up yeah. throughout the whole movie differently. Right, right. But the intro but, scene is 
it's like no a le- pinnacle scene. Right. And it's no less jarring to go from the Madonna breakfast table discussion to yeah, the Mr. Only tips. Orange <laughs> bleeding in the back of the car. Yeah, you exactly. Know, you're not, not going to die. <laughs> shut the fuck up. You know? <laughs> yeah, shut the fuck up. But like, so, it, yeah, I think that. that yeah. I feel like a movie like Reservoir Dogs, like maybe might be an extreme, but maybe the pacing of that movie wouldn't have happened if Goodfellas oh, didn't totally didn't establish something totally like that true. before, where you where you can show the viewer the I don't want to say you can show the viewer the end and then build mm. to it, but that's essentially what it is. Right. You well, know, that I wasn't think, necessarily uh, the end, but that was the that was a pivotal right, conflict right, right. point. And you show them that in the intro crawl, that's a I feel like that was a very unique aspect that True. nobody had done True. before, to my knowledge. I think you can also see that in Reservoir Dogs in the uh, the bathroom story scene part. That, to me, is a scene that feels... Oh, like with the cops? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, like, the way that it's, like, him telling the story and then you seeing the story in your mind's eye... And it almost makes you forget that, like, it's not actually happening. Right, yeah. It's, you know? a, it's a fake story. Right. But... The way that that fits into the context of the rest of the movie is, I feel like it fits into where, you know, the way that Goodfellas, the spirit that Goodfellas was made in. Like, it would fit into that. I mean, I think if I was going to pick one scene, if you're going to be like, hey, what's your one top scene? It would definitely be Martin Scorsese's mom, that whole scene where they, they come in at night with him covered in blood and then they, they're eating fucking pasta with his mom and and talking to her at the dinner table because of where it sits in the movie. The the movie would be so different if that was the first scene or that was, you know, in the the very beginning, the way that that sits in after everything that has happened, it's like, you've seen this dramatic rise to Tommy finally fucking up for real and now putting them all in danger and having to deal with it. That is then broken up by the fact that like it's all still so mundane to them like he literally just is like oh whatever we'll drive to my mom's house oh my mom woke up well i guess we'll hang out with her we'll take care of this tomorrow this dead fucking body in the car yeah you know they sit down and have a whole pasta dinner right. well Which, they also, just wanted to get a shovel it also turns out he's not even dead yet yeah, <laughs> you oh know which God. which again because of the way he's that, like mom i gotta borrow this knife right and because of the way <laughs> but the way that it's that it's set up, you as the viewer already know that because it, that has been revealed to you at the beginning of the movie. You also already know that Billy Batts is completely dead, but like that changes how you view the movie and the characters because of the way it's edited. Right. This movie, I think more than anything, not that I don't want to give credit, obviously, to the actors, which are fantastic, to, and honestly, across the board, there is not, a, this is one of the few movies I can't name a single performance in the whole movie that isn't good, including a totally untrained actress who had never acted in a movie before and was the director's mother, and basically is in your favorite. It is in your favorite scene of the whole movie. Maybe the best scene in the movie. Maybe the best scene in the movie. Honestly, like objectively, right? <laughs> it could or be subjectively the best, My- best <laughs> in the whole movie. The best scene in the movie. But but what's so great about that is because it's also improv, and the actors improv in character with her. So, like, she was telling that story because it was probably a story she'd told before in real life. She interjects a reality to the scene 
into the whole movie that is so fucking important and like I don't know, man. There's just you. There's literally almost nothing bad you can say about it. Right. It, it's fucking untouchable. It, if there is an untouchable movie that should be in here, I think it's already on our list that we started making of untouchable movies. Anyway, it's fantastic. It's Goodfellas. It better be fucking untouchable. I'd say my favorite scene is the whole helicopter scene. Where yeah, that is great too. That whole final crawl where he's just so broken and he's yep. so collapsed of a person yep. and he can't think of anything other than getting caught and he's so trying to get out of it and he's doing his cooking family dinner and hanging out with his wife and doing this yep. and that but in the whole bottom of it it's it's the pressure of everything that you just watched in the hour and 40 minutes before right, leading right. up to it it just shows how how heavy these things can be on you. And he knows that it's going to come in collapsing on him and he just can't get that out of his head. And you see it in his eyes. He's pale, disheveled, sick looking, and he's narrating the whole scene too, which is so like, and I know he narrates the whole movie, but the fact that he narrates his whole downfall sort of scene is just so fucking cool to me. I think, yeah, the narration is really important, too, because, uh, like, one of the things Scorsese said in the interview, I watched this interview with him, and uh, we're talking about a lot of the stuff. It's where I, you know, he said that he was influenced by, like, movies from the 1930s, including The Public Enemy and James Cagney movies like that. Um, One of the other things he said that was really important, I thought, was uh, to that. He was saying that, like, he wanted to make a film that um, encapsulated this reality that, like, other people couldn't understand and that the thing that made those 1930s movies so important and was that they took something that was objectively bad and made you like it. Right. And that... Like, James Cagney in The Public Enemy, I think, is a really great example because that movie is literally about a pretty much irredeemable gangster who's constantly getting into trouble, constantly doing this. It's very – I mean, honestly, if you read, like, a synopsis of it, you can see how it follows – or Goodfellas follows this similar feeling to it where it's like you see him as a child growing up with his friends, getting involved in it, having no other option but be involved in this. You know, it's – kind of like the pr- the progenitor of all of these movies that we're talking about tonight um because there's also i think some heavy similarities to imperial dreams totally we're talking about it there um but so then you see this this r- hey let's talk about anything we just tried to talk about no i don't want i'm just saying well but i would say at the this point we should go to like just our ratings yeah just go to what you were yeah i just want to know what you said last so we can like it was something along the lines of like i was talking about how this this is untouchable just lead it lead it in and i'll i'll bite off you yeah this so this movie is just to me untouchable in every way it's one of the greatest movies of all time and uh, it's 100%. Haunted. Yeah, Kev- Kevin Tomatoes score. <laughs> <laughs> 100 out of 100. Rotten Kevin. Yeah. 100%. So, uh, 
I agree. It's I don't think I would put it quite on my Mount Rushmore of movies. Like and I I don't want to say I wouldn't quite put it on there. I wouldn't put it on there. I wouldn't put it on my Mount Rushmore. But it's in my top ten. Yeah. If I was gonna be like all right, if I was gonna say my favorite movies ever Oh, don't spoil it, dude. Don't tell them what your favorite movie is. Ever, are. ever. No, no. But like, it might be, like, it'd be close to the Mount Rushmore. It'd be, it, it's like climbing. Yeah. It's climbing up but to the I peak. I think, undoubtedly, if I was just going to say, if, if someone was like, hey, just objectively, without trying to fucking take my personal feelings into account, movies that you think are the most important movies ever made. I'd put it up there immediately. But like Goodfellas is the number one one that I can think of off the top of my yeah, head. If, like with, gun, <laughs> gun, yeah, like gun to my head. Yeah, without a doubt, it is. Gun to my head in the so bamboo cool. lounge. Yep. I'm going to fucking say Goodfellas, <laughs> dude. Well, because it has so much important stuff to it. Like the soundtrack is amazing. So influential. Um, the fucking, the, the editing is not only like really good, and and really uh, influential. It compl- everything about this movie. I feel like like is uh, very specifically picked out. And I mean, you can see that in. He even said that like he picked every song in the movie to not only uh, accompany the scene, particularly either musically or lyrically. But also to have been a song that was actually actually came out at the time, or only could have been heard at that time, you know. It, so it, it, you know, nothing that was a music that wasn't available the year that was taking place on screen in front of you, right? Which I think just brings you into the world of the film. I think I just remember why I'm gonna put this part out. We were talking about. Godfather and but um as far as mafia movies goes I think this is like maybe other than the Godfather this is the movie I would show somebody if they were like oh I've never I've never seen a mafia movie I don't know what that is yeah I mean there there's just so many fucking pivotal moments of cinema in this movie there are so many soundtrack orientated things there are so many acting orientated things there are so many cinematic orientated things that in retrospect i this this movie came out before i was born so i didn't grow up watching cinema seeing this in retrospect seeing this there are things that happened after this came out that i never saw before it came out so i understand the impact that this movie had on cinema and I would never, 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 never disrespect that. Right. And I think it's it belongs. It's it's in the fucking uh, library, whatever it's called, like the <laughs> the what is it, the film Smithsonian? Yeah, it, basically the Smithsonian yeah. of movies. It's in there, and it's other than fucking Ray Liotta's teeth. Like I love this movie, man. I love it so much. Yeah, I mean, yeah, his teeth are pretty gross. He, but he's just so fucking good, as I think we mentioned before. He's like, he could. They couldn't have cast anybody else to do it. I uh, can't picture. They, I mean, maybe yes, they could they have. Could have. But I mean, they also could have. 
casted Danny DeVito to play Johnny in Miller's Crossing. Right, right. Or, you know, or like they could have passed anybody else. Tommy. <laughs> exactly. And but, but no, it was. But have I'm been so the same, happy right. that Ray Liotta was Henry. He was the perfect oh. guy to do it. Oh, yeah. And I think I didn't realize um this this was probably like my twentieth watch through of mm-hmm. this movie. But I didn't maybe realize till maybe my seventh watch through <laughs> of this movie that at the freak out point when Ray Liotta, well, when Henry becomes a drug addict, that's when it's important that he is the guy doing it because he's portraying it perfectly. Oh, yeah. When he's like collapsing you as a, an actor, well, not as an actor, but as a character, <laughs> it is perfect for him. Yeah. He's really physical actor and uh i think that like it's it's also in you know a really good actor a really good actor knows how to not just use their their voice and their face but to use their 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 whole body which includes your appearance Mm -hmm. and um what you do with your appearance like he uses his hair in this movie and i mean again i'm sure this is also inferred by the director costume director there's plenty of other people to thank for it but But it also has to do with how you act in the scene you know the more you as an actor touch your hair the more that's going to get affected and he does that in a lot of scenes where he make he forces his hair into these positions of just unruliness you know to really uh show you how fucking discombobulated he is in it's that like moment. fight club yeah you know, exactly. it's like edward norton and fight club the man looks totally. deranged totally totally um i also think that though there's a lot of stuff like uh, with costuming in general in this film um we haven't really mentioned it uh this this week we had three films and i would say two of them had like really really important costuming that or maybe not important but uh at least like very like opulent costuming right um and one that was kind of more like down to earth again this more reality based imperial dreams but in this movie man the fucking costumes are so fucking important into how you view each character and like how your views of characters change like one great example would be how you see jimmy throughout the movie whereas how you and henry want you to see jimmy at the very end of the movie and when he puts on those fucking huge glasses and he's at this diner you know right your your whole like idea of the character has changed like now he's become an old man and I think that's really important in how you portray each character. And it's it's little stuff. Like, if he just put on a pair of glasses, it wouldn't be the same as if he put on... He puts on these big oculars. I and you're like those are literally Martin Scorsese's glasses. Holy smokes. Yeah, because they look... And they also look like the same glasses that both his fucking parents are wearing in this movie, which makes me be like, oh, my God, the guy's got the same glasses as his mom and dad. Oh, my God. <laughs> he really is an Italian boy from New York City. <laughs> they all have those glasses. Do you know how many family members of mine that I saw wear those glasses? I'm sure a lot. All the fucking time, man. <laughs> hey. And it's like, yeah, it's a bada-bing, bada-fucking-boom. Exactly. You don't need glasses that big. No, but... You- 
but that is it's a status that's symbol. a status <laughs> symbol yeah yeah at this point in your life you're like i'm gonna wear glasses i'm gonna fucking wear the glasses that my daddy wore and his exactly. daddy wore um another example though there is uh uh karen lorraine Bracco's hair oh yeah, um, yeah. And, i mean i guess you just she goes through very different stages and it's funny because every time her hair changes it would show a time stamp of when like the year was and it was like, oh, now it's the '80s, and she had that like long, mm-hmm. thick hair metal bang forward. Everybody's doing coke look. Hair metal bang. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it was, man. It, it's also it's her- like three inches off the side, you know. <laughs> it was also her clothing too. Her clothing, like in in like the the house, like decor and everything. Uh, yeah, man. Goodfellas is a really fucking good movie. That's why it totally is gonna win this week yeah so, boom bada bang bada boom so yeah we might as well just jump right into the yeah so movie. kev rate it for us top uh, three all right so i will give as i already said i gave uh goodfellas a hundred percent um it's untouchable we said lots of good things about it it's great uh number two for me was miller's crossing but it's kind of like a tie. Um, I think that we've kind of lucked into another good uh, triple threat here tonight. It's really hard for me to pick a particular movie. There are no heels. They're all baby faces. I'm rooting for all of them to win. Uh, they uh, they got me for different reasons. Obviously, Miller's Crossing was my pick. So it's like, well, since I'm not picking it for number one, obviously, <laughs> it's like, that's my pick. But it's only that that gives it. A slight bit over Imperial Dreams because Imperial Dreams is really fucking good too. I just think personally for me, like Miller's Crossing, mainly because it's this like it's one of them Imperial Dreams is much more rooted in reality, whereas the other one, Miller's Crossing, is much more comical and cartoonish. And comical and cartoonish is more my thing. So I think that's more the distinction. Also, that's the one about Irish people, and the other one, I'm, you know, not African American, so I don't really speak. I can't really speak to their experience, so maybe right. that has something to do with it more than I would say. But I think it's more to do with the fact that one of them is like goofy and comical, and the other one is, you know, extremely more, serious. Extremely serious, yeah. How? But like again, like if I was just gonna say which movie I think is best, it'd be really hard. Um, because neither of them are good as Goodfellas, so that really doesn't matter what comes in second and third. Yeah, you know, exactly. Their I first, mean, second's first loser, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, everything after first place really exactly. doesn't matter. Exactly. Um, I'm I'm with you in the uh, Goodfellas as a first. I mean, yeah. it is a all-time cinematic masterpiece. There are things that we see reflected from Goodfellas in modern-day cinema and we'll see them forever. We'll see them until right, we right. die, and then the people after us will see them and look back at Goodfellas as this timeless cinematic piece. That That is a feeling that I got out of Goodfellas that I don't get out of movies like Miller's Crossing and Imperial Dreams. Right. That, like those, those movies feel dated. I mentioned it earlier when I saw that the movies came out three days apart, but Miller's Crossing didn't feel like it came out in 1990. It felt like a dated movie. Yeah. The way it was constructed, the way it was scored, the way 
even the oh, fonts, the whole script, even the yeah. the script, the script, the acting, the scenes, the scores, the font used in the intro crawl and the credits, <laughs> it it was just a really dated feeling movie. It didn't feel like it came out in 1990. Right. Like if you watch those movies back to back, they don't feel like they came out a day apart. Like one movie has a very traditional Irish score, very orchestral, and then the next movie is playing Monkey yeah. Man by well, the Rolling would, Stones. Yeah, they don't feel the, the same. I think it's also just, yeah, it's the distinction of one of the films is definitely uh, Miller's Crossing is rooted in an older style of filmmaking, and this film is rooted in a style trying to break ground at yeah, like a newer crea- style it created of cinema. Modern exactly, filmmaking. and that is yeah. why I will put Goodfellas over. I don't know if like you threw a baseball at me and it had the name of your favorite movie on them from like a hundred different participants. I'd still probably put Goodfellas right. over all those. Have you seen Have you ever seen Raging Bull though? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, that's yeah. There, I mean, it's it's tough for me. Okay, I would never, I will never ever say Goodfellas is the best film of all time. I would ne- I, I but, didn't say that, but. It's a film that I would like put on the list of films that are uh, available to be called that. I just had a feeling that if a hundred people on a whim wrote their favorite movie, it wouldn't be as good as Goodfellas. Pretty much. Like there are movies better than Goodfellas, but if I put a hundred people on the spot, they're not picking a movie that's better than Goodfellas. And, And I also think like so much stuff like this is taste based. So like, Again, this is also for, like, you guys listening. Um, none of this stuff, like, means you're stupid if you don't like something. Like, if you right. if you literally watched Goodfellas and were like, that was a piece of shit, I didn't like it, that's totally your opinion. And you know what? There's n- I can't tell you you're wrong. I literally can't. Even though I we have sat here and told you all these things that make it great, like, I do think that people are allowed – to like and dislike movies and this is bringing me all the way back around to kung fu fucking hustle Ugh. because like that's one of the things that i always have such a, i want to try to drive home when i'm making this like i and again if hey if you don't like a movie you are fully within your rights to say you don't like a movie um and same thing as if you like it and but that's not what my uh goal is i guess with this podcast is to you know shit on movies we're not your movie sucks, you know. Fuck those guys. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm obviously gonna say when I don't like stuff in a movie, but like I'm not gonna cover a movie I don't like. All right, and I mean unless someone picks for me, I've never seen it. But that's not that person's <laughs> fault. The way I look we respect at it, that person yeah. who recommended the shitty movie. But that's what I mean. Yeah, it, I re- I expect my guests and co-hosts, whoever it is, to. Do the same thing I'm doing. Pick a movie they actually like. But it's not... I don't think that, like, my opinion is the word of God, basically, is what I'm saying. You know, there's definitely people out there who don't think the same thing about Goodfellas. There's definitely people. They may be a minority, but they definitely... There's people out there who think it's not a good movie. That's just how the world fucking is. There's a majority that that think it's one of the best movies of all time. So that's why we're talking about it. But... I just wanted to say that because I think sometimes uh, on the group uh, people get really into acting like this movie is called My Movie's Best, and that's not the case. We're not asking for the best gangster movie 
we're asking for your favorite movie. There's a difference. Um, so just I want to keep that in mind. I don't like want to squash arguments though at the same time like i feel like if you guys are passionate that's a good thing but i just felt the need to address it because i was a little disappointed honestly in in how the group you know reacted to other group members picking a particular movie i guess is the way i would put it like you can have your opinions it's fine but like we don't need to make it into like a huge thing because just because you don't think a movie is the best movie ever doesn't mean it shouldn't get covered because maybe we would have sat here and not said what you thought we were going to say you don't know that when you're picking the movies so just pick the movie you like the most and don't complain about it i guess and i love you guys so don't take don't take this the wrong way this is not intended to be like a F you to anyone in particular. This is just a thing to say. Remember, when we're picking movies, we're talking about movies. We're having fun. Even if the movies suck, we'll just make fun of them. No worries. But you also could have picked <coughs> Kung Fu Hustle. Well, that's okay, because next week we are going to be covering... No, that's not true. It won't be next week. Next week we will be covering... <laughs> No, we're not covering Kung Fu Hustle next week because I forgot it's a very important time of year. Yes, it is, baby. It's it's Christmas if you like wrestling, kind of, because it's WrestleMania season. Yeah, exactly. And you know what that means? It means we have My Movies Better Mania 2 coming up for you guys so keep in mind think about your favorite movies that star a wrestler actor in them uh my choice will be either they live or no holds barred have you seen either of those movies dylan i've seen neither of them then my choice is they live oh okay shit we will find out your choice in the group choice later but yes, that's right. It is Rowdy Rowdy Piper oh, in the movie They smokes. Live. Uh, um, and yes, so he is going to be our main event. My oh movie is better God! Too. So yeah. Oh, and then also, uh, Goodfellas number one for me. Imperial Dreams number two. Word. Yeah, <laughs> I totally just ran. Had to, just bad. had to throw it in there. No, we're we're in there. I just gotta say it out there. And it was. Without speaking for 20 minutes, it is for the exact same reason that Kevin mentioned before, that both of those movies, it's really hard to pick one of either of them because they display completely different messages, completely different stories, morals, and conclusions. But I picked the other one, (laughs) so I kind of have a natural lean to it. And I mean, like I said, man, it's not about who wins and loses. It's about... It's about Goodfellas being the best movie of those three. Because, come on, guys. You True. But it's also about the friends we made along the way. It is. I mean, and it's yeah, about no, the ones who the didn't journey. get whacked. Yeah, it's the journey, you know, not the destination. <laughs> so, guys, thank you again for listening. Welcome. Rate. Goodbye. Subscribe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I always tell you to like, share, and subscribe, but nobody ever does it. So, or if you have, I don't have enough of them to have been alerted. So if you have, and I keep telling you that you haven't, thank you for for doing all that stuff. I know people are listening because I do have. Fuck some you, pay me. 
So thank you again, man. You guys <laughs> honestly give me a reason to do this. I've had three beers. And I'm going to wrap this up as quickly as possible. It's midnight, and I just turn into a pumpkin. My movie's better. Good night, good luck, and go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I love you guys. Have a good night, guys. Bye. <laughs>